Hi, this is Sadie Miller and you're listening to The Sirens of Audio. I think there was a three-year gap between the first series and this one, which is the second series. The reason being, I desperately have to be wanted, you see. So I let the first sort of rush subside, if you can call it rush, and the, oh gosh, you know, doing a Sarah Jane tape, what will it be like? I love the comments that I had back from people who'd bought it, and I wanted to see if down the line, even years later, people would still remember and want to hear more, because it is a dicey thing when you put an assistant on her own without the doctor, you know, kind of will it work? We did it in K9, and, you know, as everyone sort of knows on the circuit, I'm not so happy with that. So it was just that still people were asked, are you going to do any more? So I thought I would love to do some more if Big Finish are interested. And Jason Haig-Ellery had said, you know, when you're interested, let me know. And I, I did. And um, it's been an absolute joy doing this series too. We have collaborated on scripts with David Bishop. I have been allowed such an input on storyline, not because I'm good at it, but because I have in my head this character that I've kind of been living with for over 30 years. G'day audiophiles and welcome to this special edition of the Sirens of Audio. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip and this has been a long time coming because it's been well, well over six months since we did our feature on Sarah Jane Smith series one and we're finally, finally putting out our retrospective on series two. So I'm very excited about it. It's a shorter gap than they had between the two series though. <laughs> How long was that? Four uh, years? Yeah, about four years between Series 1 and Series 2. So I think, you know, we're, and we're still waiting for, well, Series 2 will never come. But, you know, we're waiting years and years for the next one, and that never happened either. Yeah, I know. If we if we wanted to do a 20th anniversary, we'd have to wait another three years, wouldn't we? We would. Set? But we're not going to do that. We no. want to get this. Uh, <laughs> we want to get this out there for you to enjoy. So it's uh, we're going to be talking about Series 2. There's four stories in the series, and... Yeah, I just, rather than jump down a rabbit hole, as we normally do in our podcast, I just want to ask you the question, what is it about the character of Sarah Jane Smith that is so enduring amongst most fans? It's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because nearly any fan survey will put Sarah Jane Smith at the very top of the favourite companions list, certainly of our generation, and even you know, all new fans, once they start watching the show, put her there too. And even all the other companions recognise the fact, you know, talking to Janet and Sophie, they all recognise, yeah, Sarah Jane Smith was the favourite. I think, I don't know, I mean, partly, for me, it was partly against my age. I, I talk about the fact that um, Sarah Jane was the first woman I fell in love with. Because um, you just feel safe around her and secure. I think Elizabeth's performance is so confident and she brings so much out of the character in terms of humour 
but also fear, but also excitement and adventure. She looks like she's having a great time, except for when she's not. But, you know, mm -hmm. on the whole, you can see why she wants Because you look at what she goes through in some of the stories. It's absolutely horrific what Sarah Jane goes through. But the moments when she's just traveling with the Doctor, there's excitement there and adventure. And it's all in the actress. Because certainly back then, the writers weren't writing for the companions. They certainly weren't writing for the female companions. They were just given lines to say to, to let the Doctor do what he has to do. But Elizabeth managed to get so much out of those lines and play them up. And I think because um, particularly she also got on well with John because she was able to carry a lot of stuff with John as well. And, you know, and John was in a grief process his last season. He'd lost Katie Manning. He'd lost the unit family was dispersing. And yet he obviously took a shining to Elizabeth, which I, you know, I would have thought he may have done because, yeah, you know, when you lose everything that you're so, so dear, often it's a bit harder, but for, certainly for, you know, John, he didn't show that. But when John put, when John, Tom came along, the rapport between Elizabeth and Tom is so clear and their affection is so clear. And we know that they played up a bit in rehearsal rooms and they added bits and they added movements in. You know, there's a lovely scene in the pyramids of Mars where you know, they both stroll in, see the mummies turn around, walk back out again, you know, did this abrupt turn. All that sort of stuff was worked out in rehearsal rooms. It wasn't in the script. And I think that's just what, why she's just so endearing. And she was there for so long. I mean, what, it was three and a half years. She's probably, I don't know, she's the longest serving companion. She may not have more episodes, but she's up there amongst the longest times, certainly in years. And it was the, the golden age in terms of great stories. So, yeah, I still, and can I say, just a lovely person. I won't, I won't tell my story again, but, yeah, having met her, um, I was still in love with her. And, yeah, I still miss her. And, and when, when, when I heard that she died, it was a real uh, moment. I really remember it hitting me hard because I was just so sad because she was just amazing. And then you know, when they brought her back for the Sarah Jane Adventures, I mean, once again, just lovely lady, brilliant actress, and loved her role. What about you? Why, why do you think she endures so well? Well, I, th I think you've, you've vocalised it very well. Uh, for for everybody, I, I've as you were speaking, I was thinking about the difference in performance between her and the third Doctor and her and the fourth Doctor because there is there is a there is a little spark that's not quite there in season eleven. However, that's the season I'm most familiar with. That's the that's one of my favourite seasons. I just love all those stories. But it wasn't until she got with the fourth Doctor that it kind of well. You can't say it was better. It was just different and it changed. There was a little bit of a dynamic shift uh, in in those two actors performing together. And so, therefore, the character changed as well. And I was thinking that to compare that with the with the current series or the, the 21st century series, can we call it the new series now? It's been going for decades. <laughs> um, when when the companion... I mean, we had it with Rose. We, Rose went from the, the ninth to the tenth, but the chemistry was similar in both. Uh, it just sort of got deeper with the 10th, I guess. It didn't really change. The, 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 um, the companion in the, in the new series that did have a change was Clara. So she started off with the 11th Doctor uh, with a certain dynamic and there was a certain, there was a special arc actually in that, in that series 7B, which I'm currently watching at the moment and really, really enjoying more than I did when it was first transmitted, yeah, to be honest. I, yes, I watched it recently too. And you're right. I enjoyed it so much more recently. Mm. Yep. Um, 
And th- then there's that shift to the 12th Doctor, which is a, a totally different dynamic. There was something totally different between the character of the Doctor and Clara between those two regenerations, just as there was with Sarah Jane and the third and fourth Doctors. So that, that's my little little comparison there. But I, I love them both. I love I think, them both. I think, I think that's partly an age thing, I think because John was so much older than Tom. So we're, it's interesting because we're, aware, we're the third Doctor being so protective over Joe, and so they had this lovely protective relationship. Because Sarah's so much more independent, it wasn't quite the same relationship, but there was still a deep fondness. Anyway, and once again, Elizabeth's lady could turn a couple of times when she thought you know, the third Doctor was dead twice, you know, Monster Peladon and Planet Spiders. There's tears and, and just there's so much emotion there. So you can see that this is deep care, but there was nothing to, because the age difference was there, it wasn't, you could see it wasn't romantic. I guess with Tom, there was actually a different, slightly different sort of friction. But it was, once again, it wasn't, it wasn't that sort of sexual friction at all because Tom's Doctor was so non-romantic <laughs> so alien um i mean he could be very human and, and very warm but there was times in which you know you just saw usually no- that was when he was angry he was <laughs> yes. most human yeah, yeah. You, might, you might be right there but yeah it's just yeah once again just just an amazing performance and i said she should have been a star um you know the, the fact that she didn't go on because anything she acted in she was just amazing and always acting there's never a moment you can catch Elizabeth you know in the back scene where she's not being Sarah Jane. She's just Hmm. carrying it off all the time. So we're going to talk about Series 2 of Sarah Jane Smith, the Big Finish production. But a while back, we spoke with Gary Russell, and we're talking a lot about Series 1 because he was the producer for Series 1, but not for Series 2. There was a bit of a transition going on with Gary Russell. So uh, he was actually going to become the, the script editor for the Sarah Jane Smith adventures on television. So all this was happening around the same time that series two was happening and John Ainsworth was taking over as producer of this series. So uh, we've got a little snippet from our chat with Gary that we didn't use before, where he's talking a little bit about the transition from Big Finish to Sarah Jane Smith. And we thought we'd share that with you just before we get into uh, the series two retrospective proper. So you weren't tempted to bring another season after this of Sarah? I I thought I, I was quite happy that I'd done what I wanted to do. That it turned out, I'm not somebody who likes arcs, but having done it, I thought the Miss Winters thing worked. We'd left it on a slight cliffhanger if there was another series. I never pitched to Jason doing a second series at all. Um, I thought, and Liz never asked to do a second series of me. And there's quite a gap, I think. But I can't remember exactly... Uh, my years. series, we... how long? Four years. Two thousand. The oldest was two thousand two. The next one comes out two thousand six. Yeah, I was going to say because we we made it in two thousand and one. Um, and oh dear, oh no, oh, did we? Yeah, well, we did. It was quite a long time. Or well, maybe we started in two thousand one, ended two thousand and two. Because um, it was quite a long time between recording it and it actually getting turned into shiny discs. And yeah, I think they must. They must have recorded, John must have recorded his Sarah Jane before she went to Cardiff to do School Reunion, but only just. And I'm feeling it came out after School Reunion. I think the last one came out about three weeks before School Reunion. Was transmitted. Yes. But yes, I think it was made before she recorded School Reunion. Um, 
Uh, and then I remember talking to Liz. I knew she'd done it and everything. I was, I'm, I'm a feeling it was done after I left Big Finish. You see, I, I think it might have been in, being talked about. I don't know. I think John might have made it after I left Big Finish. I honestly can't remember whether I was there while it was being made or not. Um, but I know I didn't. I certainly didn't see anything of Liz until we did the read through of um, the, the pilot for Sarah Jane Adventures, which I wasn't the script editor of. Um, but Russell said to me, will you come to the read through? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, sure. He said, I just think Liz would be very happy if she saw a familiar face. This is, this is a big thing for her. She's quite nervous. So if you were there, it might put her at ease. And I was thinking, well, it might not because you know, <laughs> we haven't seen each other for a few years and, and but anyway, I, I went along and she greeted me like her best friend in the history of the world. And that was lovely. So that when I eventually, uh, for the second season of the TV show became the script editor, it was absolutely brilliant. And, and you know, I had absolute ball with that woman. She was amazing. And I even didn't mind the amount of time she would phone me at three o'clock in the morning and wake me up and say, I've got this problem with this line. I don't think Sarah Jane would say but. She'd say and. And I'd go, Liz, do you know what the time is? She said, yes, it's half past three in the morning. You're awake, aren't you? Well, I am now. Um, and we've just had huge laughs at three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I'd say, look, I, we'll talk to you. Let me make a cup of tea. So we'd be talking while I was making tea and... It was just brilliant. And then I'd go back to sleep at about five o'clock and think, oh, I've got to be up. Because I had to be in studio, not in studio, I had to be in my office for the whole duration of recording. So if they were starting at seven in the morning, I had to be in the office at seven in the morning. And at five in the morning, I'm still having conversations with her, the leading star of this, who also, by the way, has to be on location and ready to go at seven in the morning uh, because she wants to say and rather than but. And, and I love that and I miss that about her because that was not a one-off occurrence. That was a fairly common occurrence. And sometimes she would just ring me at three o'clock in the morning and just go, darling, it's your leading lady here. And I've just decided I wanted to ring you at three o'clock in the morning just to wake you up. And I'd go, well, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. And she'd go, so what's it like on your part of Cardiff and my part of Cardiff? It's raining. And I'd be going, it's raining in my part of Cardiff. As well, Liz, because I live about three blocks away from you and I can actually see that your light is on in your flat at the moment. I know, I thought I'd check, you know, I watched your light go on as I rang your phone. And that's what she was like. And we just had a laugh and we had, you know, four years of that. And uh, she was brilliant. She was absolutely brilliant. Did she enjoy the um, change from your surgery coming back and... Did she enjoy it? I don't know. Did she enjoy it? Yes, of course she enjoyed it. She loved it. I don't think she ever stopped being nervous. I don't think she ever quite believed in the success of not the show, because she 100% believed in that. I think she had a problem accepting that people would want to watch a 50-something-year-old woman playing the lead in a kid's TV show. And I think she never... I remember... When she died, the thing that we all were saying about it is that outpouring on CBBC that happened. I, I wish she could have seen that 
because she would have finally accepted that everybody loved her. And I think Liz's psychology was she would never quite believe that. She, she would never believe that she was as popular as she was. Um, and it's just a shame it, it took her dying. And, and she still never <laughs> would have known about how popular she was. Um, and there's a, there's a horrible irony about that. She was deeply insecure about that sort of thing. Uh, and she just never needed to be because she was so talented and so nice. And she was so brilliant with those kids, uh, you know, Tommy and Ange and Danny, um, just, they learned so much from her about being actors. Um, and I think they learned a lot about life from her as well, because, you know, Liz, Liz is quite, if you ask Liz a straightforward question, you get a straightforward answer. She, she doesn't mollycoddle. Um, and I think, you know, that was a very tight little group of, of those three kids. Um, uh, so yeah, it was it was a good it was a good run. It was good fun. Yeah, and far too soon. Oh, yeah, we could have gone on. I mean, the, 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 as far as I know, the agreement from CBBC was this series keeps going until. Well, I mean, I think the agreement with Russell was this series keeps going until you stop wanting to do it, Russell. Um, I don't think we ever sat down and thought, "Oh, we're going to get renewed." I mean, we did. And the finance people worried about that. But we always kind of knew that at the back of our heads, it was like, we have a fairly open invitation from CBBC here to keep going until Russell doesn't want to do it. And Russell would not have stopped until Liz didn't want to do it. And everything was always, Liz, do you want to do another year of this? Yes, right, we'll do it. Do you want to do another two years of it? Yes, then we'll do it. Um, it was very much led by what Liz wanted to do. And that's how it should be. How big was Russell's involvement? Huge. It was his show, totally his show. Um, I mean, he didn't. Well, he was more involved in it, I think, than he probably was with tortured on the day to day basis. But it was it was definitely Phil Ford's show as a showrunner. Um, but Russell was in love with Sarah Jane so much. Um, I think probably the last season. He he was slightly more rueful because he was doing the the move to America around that time. Um, but no, it was his show. It was his baby all the way down the line. Every character was his, every, everything, you know, and Julie as well. They were both very, very heavily involved in it. And then Phil looked after the actual script side of it. What was the difference in technique for you in terms of, uh, going from the audio series to this TV series? Oh, no, no comparison. The audio series, I was Russell. I was the showrunner. On the TV series, I was a script editor, and the script editor doesn't really have a huge amount of power. I mean, I work with the writers very, very closely, um, but you know, I'm not in charge of commissioning. I'm not in charge of deciding what the storylines will be. That's Phil's and Russell's job. Um, so, working on the the TV show as a script editor is much more nuts and bolts, um, with the occasional ability to throw ideas into the mix, but usually. I learned quite early on that the best time for me to be creative as a script editor is to do that with the writers, is not to do that with the execs. The, the execs don't need to know that I've had conversations with writers, how about doing this, how about doing that? Um, so that was my time to be creative, was working with the writers. And it helped that I knew Liz, it helped that I knew Sarah Jane. Um, but then, uh, you know, having said that, so did all our writers. You got Gareth, you got Joe, you got Clayton, you got Rupert. 
you've got Phil. Um, they all knew Doctor Who back to sort of, you know, the year dot. We were all big Doctor Who fans. So it's why it was quite a hard show. I know other writers tried to write for Sarah Jane over the years. And if you didn't know those characters and you didn't know the background and you didn't know what does and doesn't work in Sarah Jane, it wasn't like any other kids CBBC show. To my mind, I always used to say to Russell and, and you know, he said absolutely was what the intention was. To me, this felt like we were re remaking classic era Doctor Who and he was making new series Doctor Who. And I said, and this is Sarah Jane is that perfect little sort of made with a, uh, a 21st century sensibility and technique but with a foot very firmly planted in the 1970s and 80s. And and if you didn't know that, if you didn't have that um, sensibility automatically in your head, writing for the show was quite difficult. And we were lucky, we were blessed that we had brilliant writers. Yeah, I just recently rewatched all seasons with my 11-year-old, and he has just fallen in love with Sarah Jane like I did, the same age. Quite right too, because that's 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 what the show is about. It's making... I say, you know, for me, it's making, it's a show in my head for eight to 12 year olds with a sort of little, um, little something for the older ones as well. But, you know, you, you, you mentally go, this is for eight to 12 year olds to grow up with and, and be in love with in the same way that Harry Potter was. Um, and I think, you know, it's a brilliant show. I'm so proud of Sarah Jane Adventures. Absolutely wonderful. There isn't a bad step in it. All right, so it's always great to hear from uh, from Gary, isn't it? Uh, his memory and what the detail he has is is extraordinary. All right, so we'll start off with story one from the series, which is called Buried Secrets, and then we'll, we'll have a chat with some of the makers and stars of that particular story. And uh, throughout, we're going to be interspersing chats with each of our guests. So uh, you will get to know their voices, no doubt, or if you're watching on YouTube, uh, and you should be subscribing and commenting too, um, you will get to know them there too. So, I'll read the blurb for Buried Secrets. Sarah Jane Smith believes her days as a crusading investigator are behind her, safe from those who tried to destroy her. But others believe she has a destiny, and they will stop at nothing to prevent her fulfilling it. A trip to Florence to help an old friend leads to the unearthing of a murderous conspiracy buried within the city's catacombs. Here are the headlines at midday. Police are investigating the sudden death of Hilda Winters. She was under house arrest awaiting trial for the theft of sarin nerve gas pellets two years ago. Josh, try to think of this as a fresh start for all of us. Keep in touch, OK? Ciao. <sighs> a fresh start, eh? <laughs> I wish it were that simple. I spent too many years looking over my shoulder. I don't have to do that anymore. I found my place in the world. The past is past. I know this face. Even allowing for the decomposition, I recognize him. Oh my God! It's, it's Professor Brunetti! Look, I don't know how you found me, but I have absolutely no comment to make about Miss Winters. Now just go away. I'm not a reporter. My name's Will. Will Sullivan. You knew my brother, Harry. Sarah? Who's it from? Miss Winters. Let me look. Dear Miss Smith, if you're reading this, it means I'm dead and my fears have proved correct. What the? But she's 
dead! Yes. She sent me a letter from beyond the grave. The Exemplar Crass is opening. More Latin rubbish. It means Book of Tomorrow. The Exemplar Crass contains several predictions, hence the name, Book of Tomorrows. But these weren't vague prophecies open to any interpretation, like those found in the writings of seers like Nostradamus. The predictions in the Exemplar Crass were apparently very specific, and several of them made mention of an apocalyptic event due in our lifetimes. Josh? Josh, can you hear me? Josh! You alright? Josh! What did you say your name was? Will. Will Sullivan. Why don't you sit down, Will Sullivan? Here are the facts of the trivia. Buried secrets. Number 2.1 in the Sarah Jane Smith range. Story code was 6J06. Written by David Bishop. Directed and produced by John Ainsworth. Starring Elizabeth Sladen, Jeremy James, or Jess Builder, depends what name you want to use for him, and Sadie Miller with Tom Chadbon. We spoke with Sadie on episode 60 of The Sirens of Audio. You can go back and have a listen. Recorded 3rd of November, 2005. Released January, 2006. It had been three years since the previous Sarah Jane story had been released, Mirror Signal Maneuver. Music, theme and sound design by Steve Foxton and recorded at the Moat Studios. Sarah Miller, as you probably know, was the real-life daughter of Elizabeth Sladen and actor Brian Miller. The character of Will Sullivan was originally going to be, be companions Harry Sullivan's nephew, not his brother. Tom Chadbon, who plays Will, was in Doctor Who's stories The City of Death, as Duggan, and The Mystery of Mysterious Planet. He was also in Blake's 7-episode Countdown as Del Grant, and would return to Big Finish to play that character in a series of audio plays. The Medici Tombs Excavated was based on real-life events. The newsreader, Sean Lay, is a real BBC newsreader and could be heard on Radio 4's The World at One. And the story was a homage to the Mask of Mandragora. And that's the facts and the trivia. So how did you feel about getting into this story and the, the first thing they do is announce the death of Hilda Winters? I must say, that is probably the thing I disliked the most about the whole series, <laughs> which was series one was this amazing build-up. Because it ended Hilda. on a cliffhanger, didn't it? It's it like, had ended on a I'll be back, I'll be back, says Hilda Winters. Yes, but, and yeah. I love Hilda. It's just an amazing character. What you can immediately tell from the opening moments is the fact that the entire production team has changed. And you know, Doctor Who did this all the time. Lots of TV shows did this all the time. I know, you know the bill would change produce and suddenly they'd blow up the station, kill half the characters. Every new producer and writer wants to leave their mark. That's okay. And it was obvious that this was going to take a whole new direction. And to be honest, once you get into it, I love the direction it takes. Mm -hmm. it's, it yeah. is exciting and vibrant and very different to Series 1. As you've listened, I'm sure you all listened to our Series 1 retrospective. I love series one. I love the different locations, the different stories. I love the global. I love season one. But this is a totally different tact. I love it too. But it's going to have a much stronger overriding theme. Series one had one in terms of Hilda and the villain. This one, though, it's going to be much more ingrained. But it lets you know straight away by killing Hilda, we are in a totally different world. And we're leaving series one behind. So it was a shock. I was looking forward to the cliffhanger. I was looking forward to having more of Hilda. But that's okay, because what we got was 
I think probably even better. But yeah, I, I, I was surprised. What did, what did you think? Yeah, it was a bit uh, bit of a shock, wasn't it? It's was like, oh, that I wanted to know what what uh, what else she was going to do, but very quickly we got into into this new sort of story arc. Whereas there was a kind of a story arc in series one that was well, there was like a thread that went through less yeah. less of an arc, more of a thread. This was very very story arc heavy from right from the start, and so the, the major changes were. Uh, new producer in John Ainsworth. We have um, a writer for every single story, same writer, David Bishop. And um, we've got that definite arc that's going through, which is building up and up through each story. Some amazing cameos from yes. from people um, in here. For, we've got, well, you mentioned Tom Chadbon. Some people, I think, are just made for radio their voices are just incredible and his is one of them yep. um not only is he great to watch on screen in in doctor who blake seven etc but i think was this his first time with big finish tom chadbon so i'm it was, not sure but i think it probably was actually it was pretty early on so it was after this he would have come back and played del grant he did it as much blake this, yeah. seven yeah because it was a long time and lots of blake seven people in this series as well so we had stephen greif and jacqueline pierce as well, playing some major roles that would be all the way through. There were a couple of cameos in stories, but then they would be very heavy, heavily starring in one story each, I think it was. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll mention them the more as reflections we later on when they had a more major part, but yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. but it was great to hear to hear their voices too. So um, a character called Dexter, David Goodison, so it was interesting to hear his voice uh, throughout Dave as Ross. well. Davros himself. Um, and he's a he's a great radio actor too. I think he I think David's done lots of radio over the years. Actually, yeah. I think that's his main uh, acting profession is radio. So um, yeah, and and we start to get there's a few different arcs. There's the Sarah Jane arc. There's the white the, the sort of the larger arc which incorporates other elements from a, a previous Doctor Who that are going to come in. We've yep. got the We've got the um, Josh Townsend arc that begins yeah. as well because we've got Josh taking a major decision in this episode that causes starts to cause friction and causes friction between him and Sarah throughout the rest he, he, of the he series. He has a big character arc that he, his character goes on. And once yeah. again, something I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Uh, and and it's although I felt by the end of it I thought I should have been expecting this. This is this is obviously what it what it's been. I think it was just written so well by David Bishop. So it does. I mean it, it does it does um retcon series one a bit, but it does in a in a good way with, with Josh's character. Because it you yeah. know, it redefines how he entered season one and why he entered the first series. But that that's okay. It was it was good to do. Yeah. It's it felt like it had been planned out even though it obviously wasn't. So let's have a listen to what producer John Ainsworth has to say about this production. Four years after the first season of Sarah Jane Smith was first released, the second season was finally going to be produced, but this time with a new man in the hot seat. And John Ainsworth took over the job of producing the second season. John, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Listen, we, we, it's been four years between seasons. Now, you wouldn't have had much to do with the first season, did it, anything at all? Were you aware of the first season? I was aware of it, but uh, yes, I had nothing actually to do with it. I think I listened to it even before I knew I was doing the second series. So, um, But yeah, I was just a, just part of the audience, really, at that point. 
So at what stage, and who asked you, and you know, how did you end up getting hold of the second season? I can't, it, it would have been either Gary or Jason would have suggested that I do it. Um, I mean, I produced the Judge Dredd series, which I think might have come to an end or been in, in a sort of hiatus point at that point. So maybe, maybe they realised I was a sort of, you know, available and had the capacity to to take it on. Um, so yes, I think it probably would have been Jason just said, "Oh, we'd like you to do this. We want to do four releases for this one rather than six, which the first series was." Um, and take it from there, really. Yeah. So what was your starting point? How how did you decide what you were going to do? How, how it was going to work? Well, I think I, I think I listened to the first series and sort of decided what were the, the, the most successful points of it. Um, and I think Test of Nerve, which is the one that David Bishop wrote, I think, for the first series... I think that was generally considered as the sort of high point in terms of it was like the best story. Um, so I think maybe I took the lead from there. But I did want to do something quite sort of different with it, I think. I, I think initially I wanted to do something, do something actually more different than we actually ended up doing. I think I was a little bit... I I think, if I remember rightly, I I didn't want it just to be Doctor Who without the Doctor and Sarah, if you see what I mean. So I think I wanted it to have a very different sort of feel, perhaps more realistic and gritty sort of feel, um, more like a sort of modern-day thriller, I think. And initially, with that in mind, I did actually talk to some other writers about ideas, um, but that eventually didn't come... It, it turned out to be too radical. I mean, I should point out Liz, Liz was involved very much uh, in discussions about this all the way through she was very hands-on so what point what point had you met liz beforehand is this when did you meet liz? i think I, I think i'd met her but didn't know her particularly well i don't think i think we spoke initially spoke briefly on the phone and then i remember we met we met for coffee in london off oxford street and had a big sort of chat about it then and then after that it was quite regular phone conversations sort of back and forth with sort of ideas and opinions about what way we should take it and everything. I mean, a lot of it, far more than I've ever had on any other series. And certainly not with, you know, I've, I've never had a, a, a lead actor be so involved. So was Liz looking at storylines and story concepts? Yeah, and, oh yeah, yeah. draft she, scripts? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, she was very much involved and, you know, had opinions. Um which was great. So we had. I mean, I'd loved all this. You know, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't interference. You know, it was. Um, it was collaboration. You know, and and I loved it. Actually, it was. It, it was a really rewarding experience. You know, because I I held her in regard and her, you know, opinions about acting and performance and story, I thought were you know very valid. And so uh, uh, you know, she had a lot of a lot to contribute. I felt. So has any other actor you've ever worked with ever had done that? Been been, been that involved? Any other actor in Big Finish? Not to that extent. I mean, I had a little bit of that with Paul Darrow on Blake Seven. A little bit. But not, no, generally most people are sort of happy to sort of, I mean, I mean, actors will always have opinions on, on, on the scripts, but 
it's usually, you know, I mean, like someone like Colin Baker, he cares very much about the story. But if he's if he's concerned, he might sort of give me a call a few days before a studio or, or certainly say something in the studio and make little tweaks, but not in the sense of actual whole script development. No. So that that was quite unusual. But that's what she wanted to do. That's the way she, you know, she sort of cared about it so much and um, wanted it to be good, wanted it to show the character in a way that she thought was true to what had already gone before and been established. You know, I mean, she cared very much about Sarah, I think, and how she was portrayed. So that was good, really. So after much back and forth and talking, the, the decision we made was to actually ask David Bishop to write the whole series, all four episodes. Um, and we went to him, I think, mainly because he'd written Test of Nerve, and that was, and I think Liz must have agreed with uh, me as well, that Test of Nerve was a, a, a really strong story that that she had liked as well. Um, and the reason wanted someone to write all four was because there was quite a through line, a, a story arc, uh, and it seemed to make sense. And I'd worked with David before, of course, on... Um, We'd done a lot of Judge Dredd stuff together before. And I think he'd done the Doctor Who and Bound before. Yeah, that would have been before this. So, yeah. So David and I were used to working with each other and I, and I knew he was good and um, uh, and was, you know, good fun to collaborate with, really. So that's that's where we can see it's all coming back as I'm talking to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so did, did you ask David to develop storylines or did you have in your head where you wanted to go? How much is it, was it you in terms of giving guidance for the any of the arc at all? I'm trying to think. I'm sure there was something that influenced me. And I was on the verge of saying it was the series Alias. Um, but I know that's not true because it was only later. I hadn't seen Alias at that point, so it couldn't have been Alias. But I remember Lee Binding, who did the covers for us, when he'd read the scripts, he actually sort of flagged up there was some similarities between Alias and what we had done. I think there's a bit, uh, there's, there's a bit in the first story where Sarah finds, is it Sarah? She finds a portrait of herself buried behind a wall. Is that right? I mean, I haven't heard it for ages. <laughs> You're looking uh, blank. No, I, only, I only listened, listened to it yesterday. Um, oh, right. And I, they, in the crypt, isn't there a drawing or something of her? I, th- I think. I mean, there's, a, there's there's all the prophecy about Sarah and what was going to happen in the future that was done from the past. That maybe that's what I'm thinking. Maybe it was just the prophecy, and maybe it's an alias that was actually they discover this drawing of of the main character in Alias in a crypt or something with a similar sort of prophecy type thing. Yeah, they, they talk about they, don't, they just talk about the fact that in the prophecy she's described and she matches the the description. But, that must be it. But they, there was, you know, there's hundreds of series that match the description, but they narrowed it down to Sarah Jane Smith. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, and I think that element was a little bit similar to something that happened at Alias. And at the point that Lee Binding pointed this out, I think I was a little bit worried that it looked like we deliberately copied it, even though I'd never seen the TV series. So it was just a coincidence. I mean, in hindsight, I don't think anyone made the connection or, or you know, raised it as a concern. But I think I was quite keen on this whole idea of, yeah, sort of prophecy and and that be the through line for the for the, the, the story. And I think that's probably what I was suggesting to David. And then from that point, we just sort of developed it. 
Okay, so let's hear from writer David Bishop. The first Sarah Jane Smith audio dramas came out 2002, and then there was a, a gap, a hiatus after that. And there was talk of a second season and the second series, and then not much really happened with it. Um, and then I guess sometime in 2005, uh, Big Finish were looking to do a, a second series uh, of the Sarah Jane Smith audios. And, uh, and then John Ainsworth, I believe, was producer for it um, and reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in, in writing for it. And I said, absolutely, because, you know, I, I really enjoyed writing Test of Nerve, although it was very early on in my big finished career, as it were, of writing audio dramas. And by this point, 2005, I'd written a lot more audio dramas. I'd written for Sapphire and Steel. I'd done Full uh, and Five, My Unbound, five or six Judge Dreads by that point. And I'd written a radio play as well. So for the BBC, so as a consequence, I'd written a lot more audio drama and I felt a lot more comfortable and felt able to do more and be more ambitious in the storytelling. Now, as I understand it, uh, John was talking to other, had talked to other writers and had sort of gone down the path with other writers to write for, for series two and for whatever reason that hadn't worked out. None of which I knew at the time, of course. Everybody wants to think that they just to get the offer. Uh, but hey-ho, I got the job. Um, so John reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in, in writing for the series. And I was like, yes, absolutely, I'd love to. Um, I'd love to write more for it. And I I'm, I'm, can't remember for the life of me how it was anyway, whether he asked me to write the whole thing or pitch ideas for it. I'd need to check my notes, actually. Um, but the idea was uh, uh, that I could write four stories, write the whole of the series effectively. And therefore, there was the capacity to sort of introduce threads and story elements and different strands and have them run through the totality of the story. So it would be, although it would be, four standalone stories you could enjoy in isolation. If you listen to all of them in sequence, there was it built to a much larger story leading to a certain, from one place to another. So actually kind of a forerunner for the box sets that Big Finish does now, where the expectation is that you get the lot and you sit down and you listen to them all. But in those days it was still sort of monthly release. So they had to work as standalones rather than this built into a complete story. Um, so that was an interesting challenge. And I think it was the first time, I mean, it's four hours of, of drama, effectively. So it was, it was like writing my own little mini TV show or radio drama. So I was like, oh, I couldn't wait. It was like, this was, you know, dream come true for me. So what were the changes that you needed to make in terms of uh, Sarah Jane Smith's character? Were there things you were asked to change, incorporate, um, move away from, from the first series? I mean, Sarah's very paranoid in that first series there's that sense of she's always looking over her shoulder. She's not quite on the run, but she doesn't trust the police. She struggles to trust other people. And I think the initial idea was to make her less paranoid and have her somewhat slightly removed from things. So she's not trying to be, at least my memory, is she's not trying to be a, a working journalist quite so much. March 2005 it seems i'm writing proposed plots and character arcs so um i pitched four story ideas uh for series two uh and the first story i pitched got completely next got cut down and it was about 
so the notes I've got here, there's, I think it was about, yeah, it was a, mm, a problematic story. It was all going to be about uh, experiments that were going to give Nat the ability to walk again and to sort of remove her disability. And everybody felt that was problematic, to put it mildly. Um, and in retrospect, they were absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, so the, my initial pitch for the first story got scotch, got completely binned. Um, so I had to come up with a replacement for that. Um, and, of course, in the series, second series, it's it's uh, Harry's brother that we meet, who's, who's the significant character. And originally that was going to be Harry's nephew uh, was my original pitch. It was all going to revolve around Harry's nephew because it was like trying to figure out the differential of who was going to form, play what role in the story. Um, yeah, because it was going to end up with, when it was Harry's nephew, the danger was that Harry's nephew was going to be a contemporary of Josh and they ended up with Sarah just being the mother hen of all these whippersnappers running around the place. Um, so it was decided instead to go with Harry's brother because that would... Um, it meant that Sarah would have a contemporary rather than everybody being 20 years younger than her. Though, of course, when Russell T. Davis would create the Sarah Jane Smith TV series, they'd all be whippersnippers running around a mother hen. Oh, completely, yeah. But then that's for a different audience. That That's... Yeah, for more for family, kids, audience, rather than adults, yeah. Exactly. That's aimed at 7- to 12-year-olds, effectively, so that's entirely appropriate. You want to have the kids at the foreground and then the Sarah Jane character... Uh, operating and assisting them and guiding them and leading the way with her knowledge and everything. So completely appropriate for the Sarah Jane adventures, but, but there was a danger of everybody being far too young and Sarah being cast in the role of, you know, mother hen or grandmother hen if you're not careful. Um, so, yeah, so the first story got completely put into the bin. Um, and so I needed to come up with a, a replacement for that first story of what that could be. Um, and the reason it ended up being buried secrets is I was, uh, at the time, uh, researching an idea for a series of historical thriller novels, which I have since now finally started writing and publishing uh, as D.V. Bishop. So I was I spent 20 years not wrote, writing those books. So at this point, I think I'd done about eight years of research into Renaissance Florence and the Medici and the crypts and the tombs and all of that. Uh, so that's where buried secrets uh, came from was I thought, well, I need a new plot in a hurry and I've got all this knowledge and all this research I've done. I could stick those two together and come up with a story here that could be a way to pull the threads together. And also uh, as a callback to Mask of, I never know, is it Mandragora or Mandragona? I never know. How do you pronounce Mandragora. Mandragora. Okay, I'll, I'll go with you on this one because I've, I've heard people say it different ways and I never know how you meant to say it. When I was reading the Target novels and I hadn't seen it on TV yet, it was always Mandragora in my head. But, of course, in the TV series, it's Mandragora. Mm. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I'm not sure. We had a very patchy broadcast of the Tom Baker stories originally in Doctor Who. We didn't even get Genesis of the Daleks until the 1980s, for God's sakes. Um, they just left out whole chunks of things. Um, we had, we had so I'm not sure if that... No, I was convinced that those clams eating Harry's foot were going to be the best thing in the world ever uh, because all I had was, you know, the target novelization telling me what they look like. Oh, that sounds incredible. Anyway, that's a different podcast. So, yeah, so I, uh, it was a way to tie those elements together and set up the idea of the, 
the the helix from mask coming back 500 years later in the anniversary of that and the idea that it would come back again so that's where i managed to sort of pull those threads together reach back into the the backstory of of sarah jane and her adventures in the tardis and start to draw that arc that would cross all four stories and get you to where it finally concludes with the big cliffhanger that drove some people absolutely potty uh but there we go yes no absolutely potty that's a dreadful cliffhanger and i'm still potty (laughs) i was was, yeah we actually asked john was there plans for a third season to to resolve it and he was sort of saying well it wouldn't have been him and bad luck someone else could have dealt with this so did you did did you i think that was probably i think that may have been my as well. Without, without giving away what the cliffhanger is, we are encouraging people to buy all these and listen to them. But in terms of, did you in your head have a resolution for that? Um, I mean, in the ideal, what you would have is you would have had the sound of the TARDIS just as the just at the final moments. You might have just heard a, a faint wheezing, groaning noise in the background uh, with the implication. And then you could have started uh, series three, if it happened anywhere and any time, and Sarah could just be waking up, and either you start, she wakes up, and oh, was it all a dream? And no, it wasn't. And how did she get back here? Or she's accused of having done trying to blow up, you know, the the space shuttle or whatever it was called, um, or else she's in a different place and time. And you can start; she can be earlier, later. You could move her to wherever. And the implication being that the, the doctor has saved her, or she's found some means to save herself. Okay. So you, you thought Tard Tard has been there? Didn't even occur to me. I was so far removed from Doctor Who, and it was her own story, her own place. The, the Tard as being what she was seeing didn't even occur to me. But there you go. Yes, each their yeah. own. I could I could see them. I mean, for all we know, it's um, you know, it's oh. Whatever her name, Jenna Coleman's character, whose whose character name I've now completely blotted out of my head, who went around changing all of history and arranging things. Um, Clara. There we go. Clara could have turned up and saved her for all we know these days. <laughs> Tom Chadbon, courtesy of Big Finish magazine. When I get a script, I read it, and then I read it for what my character knows about what's happening to him. When I first read the first two episodes, I had no idea... So I played it quite straight. I, I was quite good, really, but it, I'm hopeless with the overall plot. I leave that to the director and the editor and the, and the writers. I just do the best with what I'm saying. Well, I think he's what the script says he is. I mean, he's a sort of public school. He's, you know, Josh takes exception to him because he's sort of the sort of one that's a bit of a red rag to the bull to a, a, a chap like uh, Josh. And Philip, it's such a pleasure to have back again for this episode Jez Fielder. So previously we talked about season one. Um, it went down really well with fans, but it would take four years before a second season would, would happen. Um, what, what was your understanding at that time in terms of why it would take so long to come back? Well, um, interesting. I didn't really know what was happening, and I don't know if anybody else did either. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd heard um, that it had gone down quite well, and the reviews have been very good. I remember that. Um, some of them very kind. Um but you know, it was it was it was a pretty decent product, I thought. Um, and Liz Liz carried it majestically, and um, so there was kind of radio silence on it. And you know, you don't want to be pestering people about it. And I was, as you know, I was doing a load of between the two series. I was banging out a load of Judge Dreads, and I was um, and and Nick was giving me work in Dalek Empire. Um, 
playing Herrick, which I really enjoyed. Um, <laughs> in fact, Dalek Empire is probably what where I got the, the stupidest voices to do, and I, that was just absolute joy. Um, so I could there was quite a lot going on in that in that period, and then, but I, I, you know, I'd occasionally see um, Gary and John who took over from Gary on it, and and then I I talked to Nick, and they go, oh yeah, no no no, we are we are. That's still on the yeah 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 well yeah well mm. and I was like okay I went, the, nothing nothing was really coming through. Then um, I was lying in bed one Sunday morning and uh, my phone rang and it was my old mate Mark Donovan who who has done lots of stuff a big finish and was made um, a number of cameos in the Sarah Jane adventures and um, and he said what are you doing right now I said I'm in bed why he said because um uh come to uh come to the hilton in um in paddington or edgware road or something i don't know where it was it was a big hotel somewhere in london i said no no what are you are you there what are you what mark what's going on i'm fr- i'm i'm frightened what's <laughs> he says no it's it's a doctor who convention i went oh right no i'm, I'm i've got i'm there's there's united are playing at three o'clock and i'm, I'm just gonna go to the pub no, 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 no. Come, come here because um, um, people are buying me drinks. There's loads of fans, and they they've listened to the audios. It's not just the TV. It's not just the TV lot getting special treatment. Come, you'll get loads of beer. I was like, this is a different proposition, Mark. I'll be there in forty five minutes. So I go, I go to the, and sure enough, you know this this book, the Big Finish audio book, had just come out. And um, so, you know, this is being touted around. This is beautiful heavyweight thing. And people are coming up to me going, oh, the, the, Mark Gators has said something nice about you in the Phantasmagoria. I was like, let's show me see that. Oh, God bless him. He has. And like, would you sign? Would you sign it for me? I was like, yes, if you get me a pint of Guinness. <laughs> and this is just, I was like, oh, yeah, we'd love to buy you a drink. Oh, yeah, great. Buy me a drink then. So I saw seven or eight pints of Guinness down. Then Liz turns up. and I didn't even know she's going to be there. She's like, so so we must go and have a chat. So we went up to some, some, I believe they call it an ante room, and um, we sat down and and she was just chatting away. And then she goes, they want to do a, they want to do another one. I said, oh, they do. I, I said, I haven't heard. I mean, I've spoken to a couple of people about it, and they were like, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, mm, we'll, we'll come back to you. She goes, yeah, no, no, I got a call last week. So it's cool that I've seen you. What do you think? Do you think, do you think we should do it? I was like, you really, <laughs> what do you want me to say, Liz? Uh, no, I think it's a terrible idea. I don't want to work with you again. Uh, that we should just leave it at one, you know? And she went, so what? So, so, so you mean we should do it? I said, well, yeah, that's what I mean, Liz. Yeah, we should, we should. She goes, the fans liked it, didn't they? But this is the, this is the mark of Liz, right? <laughs> She's, she only, she only cares about, well, she wasn't. It wasn't for for her. It wasn't for it wasn't for Sadie, and it wasn't for me. It was for the fans, and the fans liked it. And she just wanted she wanted to chew chew it over and say that well, if the fans liked it, we should do it, right? And I was like, yeah, of course. But but we had fun, this didn't we? She goes, oh yes, we had, we had great fun. Well, then what's not to? She's like, you're right, you're right. I'm just being silly. And then about two weeks after that, um, John calls and says, oh, I'm I'm. 
taking this one and um we want to we want to start getting this into pre-production are you, are you on board it's like yeah yes obviously you don't even need to phone me so yeah i know but i have to tick a box <laughs> and that's yeah and and, and then as i say for almost four years later to the to the to the month it was um it was a recorded note when they used David Bishop for, for all the stories, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, because he was um is I've done lots of stuff with 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 the Bish. Well, I was going to ask about that. So it was a very different approach that you know John Edgeworth directed all four stories, one writer doing the whole series. What, what was your impression of, of that? Well, I thought they'd <clears throat> I think they tried with the various writers' idea on series one. You know, you you had I mean I I don't know I'm not a script editor I don't know how much of a of a consistency nightmare it was to to kind of you know align um you know Terence Dix and Barry Letts <laughs> trying to get them to have a kind of consistency of tone and character and um but I mean that's the that's the genius job of the script editor that's the sort of unsung hero of all drama um and I I suspect although you should probably interview the script editor but I suspect it was like if we just get one guy in I'm going to have fewer phone calls to make. I'm going to have fewer corrections and I'm going to have less of a nightmare. You know, and each of those first, you know, it's not a criticism on anything that, I mean, the fact that I was the first one I did was written by Terence Dix, who wrote The Five Doctors, I was very excited about. Um, and, you know, it was a great idea having all these different different writers. Um, and they did, they did five very, very different adventures. And that was that was fun. And I think the choice of, of of bringing bringing David in and just sort of having having that one consistent narrative idea and you know allowing the the writer to sort of go over the edge of the page and go into another episode and have like a through line, which is what series two very much is. It's leading up to something. It's a bit. It's it's what it's one big episode. I think really, whereas the other season one was very much five five separate sort of vignettes. Um, yeah. So, do you, do you think I mean David Bishop in the first season was test of nerve? Yeah, do you think? Yeah. Do you think that they just listened to the five stories and went, "That's actually what we want." So that he nailed. I think there's, I think there's an element of that. Um, you know, I think Chester Nerve was was probably the best. Was probably the strong. I think it was. Well, it's my favourite episode out of them, out of all of them, and it it owes something. I think to Department S. He says going on about Peter Wingard again, but um, there is an episode of Department S with Anthony Hopkins starring opposite Peter Wingard in it, and it's called A Small War of Nerves, and it's you know there's there's a there's a disastrous chemical at large in a city with uh, you know a potential um, era defining catastrophe. So I so you know I'm quite I admire the fact that there's maybe there's a link maybe it was accidental I don't know, but that was there was something attracting me to that and also um, let me just tell you that um, the the morning of recording of Test of Nerve, um, I walked in to find this this elderly gentleman not really knowing where he was, um, dressed dressed very very modestly. Um, I honestly thought he was, you know, like I, I, I just working there, cleaning up or something, and just this this nice old man. And I said, "Oh, no, all right, are you all right, mate? You, are you lost?" He's like, "Yes." I said, "Oh, um, what do you? Who do you need? Do you want Toby's the guy that runs the studio? To, Toby Robinson? Do you, want, do you want me to find him for you?" <laughs> I'm looking for the green room, actually. I said, "Oh." Well, I'm going there as well. Are you doing the? Are you doing the the, the audio? Oh yes, yes. I said, oh well, hi. What? I said, I'm I'm Jez. 
He says, oh, I'm Roy, I'm Roy, Roy Skelton. And I went, oh, wow, are you really Roy Skelton? <laughs> he said, well, yes. <laughs> I said, can you do my answering machine? <laughs> Roy Skelton, obviously celebratedly being a Dalek in the early days, was also Zippery from Rainbow, the voice of my childhood. And um, sadly, because I moved away from the UK, the my number's gone and the answering machine's gone with it, which is such a shame. Um, but basically, if you phoned me before I went away to France, um, you would hear Roy Skelton and um and uh you know what what a, what a lovely what a lovely boat and he was brilliant in it he was really brilliant in that um test of nerve so i uh, very fond memories of, of that one i think yeah but I, your point about did they think that they'd probably hit the nail on the head more with that than any of the other episodes very very possible okay so let's have a, a closer look at story number two Philip, uh, Snowblind uh, is the name of the story, and here is the blurb. Sarah Jane Smith travels to Antarctica, where her friend Will is part of a research team studying global warming. But someone at Nikita Base is a murderer, and everybody has a guilty secret. When a massive storm severs all communications, the killer strikes and the truth is revealed. Will anyone get off the ice alive? Sarah, you've only met this Will Sullivan once, and now you're travelling halfway around the world to visit him. I'm going to see how Munro and his team are spending Aunt Lavinia's money. Visiting Will while I'm there is a happy coincidence, that's all. Nikita Base, this is Echo Romeo 79er out of McMurdo. How's your weather? Over. Good landing conditions at present, but be advised, the situation is deteriorating. Jack's coming into land. He's bringing two visitors with him. One is Sarah Jane Smith, who helped sponsor this study. Why didn't you mention they were coming earlier? I wish you hadn't come, Sarah. What? You invited me, remember? Yes, but you couldn't have picked a worse time to arrive. Munro took a swing at me. I think he's cracking up. He's been getting increasingly paranoid since the others left. No doubt Sullivan told you how he got that black eye. Well, to be fair, it took some coaxing. I'm sorry I hit him. He's not the real troublemaker. It's that woman. Morgan? A few holes in the ground don't get people excited. What we found beneath the ice, that could change the world. What is your problem? Problem? Why should I have a problem? You've been giving me grief since we first met. You're jealous, aren't you? You and Morgan are this stupid. No, of Stara and me. I don't know what you're talking about. Look, if you're trying to frighten me, you're doing a pretty good job. Can't you make this thing go any faster? I'm trying. Say that again. Watch, try harder. Hello? Someone there? Josh? Will? The others have gone. Dr. Monroe. It's just you and me now, Sarah. Whatever you do, don't come to Antarctica. It isn't safe for you here, Sarah. Snowblind, the facts and the trivia. Number 2.2 in the Sarah Jane range. Story code was SJ07. Written by David Bishop. Directed and produced by John Ainsworth. 
starring Elizabeth Sladen and Jeremy James, or just Vilda, with Tom Chadbon. Recorded 4th of November 2005 and released February 2006. Music, theme and sound design was by Steve Foxton and recorded again at the Moat Studios. Nicholas Briggs is best known for playing Dalek, Cyberman and other monsters. He plays a very scary human being. Dracula and Pierce, who plays Chessine in the Doctor Who story The Two Doctors, but is probably best known for playing Supreme Commander, then President, Serverland, on Blake 7. She has first appeared at Big, on Big Finish on the seventh Doctor story Fearmonger, and would later play Serverland on many Big Finish productions, and also Cardinal Olestra in the War Doctor series. This story was a homage to the seeds of doom. Yeah, I really love this story, Philip. It's probably, if, if anyone asked me what the standout story was, it would be this one. I think because it's a homage to the Seeds of Doom and, you know, you've got, got the same setting there. It's got some really interesting characters. Yeah, I always, I always enjoy Nick Briggs when he's doing humans, especially accented humans with, um, uh, you know, with a, a villainous villainous i suppose the word is um well he starts off that way at the very least um but this also carries on the continues on the arc um that is that is happening because the story and the previous story ended on a cliffhanger with with will jumping on the phone and saying to sarah uh, don't come to antarctica uh please don't come to antarctica whatever you do and of course she doesn't get the message and she comes to Antarctica. So uh, it all goes from there. And then by the end of the story, we find out a new revelation about Will uh, that that we didn't know before. So um, I think overall, this was a, a fantastic story. And we haven't mentioned much uh, about Steve Foxen yet because he he's new for sound design on this series and he's done a great theme tune and he's captured the the feel of Antarctica really, really well. Yep. I mean, another mark, actually, that was a new production team was the new theme. I think the thing that appeals to me about this story is, is the whole base under siege. It is, I know it's a you know classic Doctor Who trope, but when you actually do a base under siege well with a small cast of characters, it's actually very engaging. And the way that David Bishop manages to split up the characters at different times to have different conversations with different pairings and still manage to put them in jeopardy, there's, there's a few you know very powerful moments it's, it's quite nerve-wracking, and as I said, the sound design just adds so much to what's going on, and also the way that it's a homage to Seeds of Doom, but it's also a flip, because what you are expecting isn't there, and so that's a very clever part of, of the story that keeps you intrigued, but doesn't happen. Yeah, and what we did mention about the previous story was that it was a, a, a great character piece between Sarah Jane and Will Sullivan, uh, them getting to know each other, so that relationship is is starting to be tested by the end of this uh, episode um, very much because we find uh, another arc. This this series is just full of arcs because we've got the Will Sullivan arc too. He comes in being Harry's brother um, quite innocently and that changes throughout as well. And we're starting to, to discover that there's something deeper going on within this series than we initially suspected by Snowblind. So by yep. the end of this... We have got another cliffhanger. Each episode ends on a cliffhanger. And I should say, big finish. I love the way, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. I love the way that each installment of this has a previously on Sarah Jane Smith a trailer. 
before every episode starts because it's um it, it's I like that I like the way it does that and and, and particularly you, and with you, the output. You, you need it because because the complexity of the stories beforehand. I mean, if if this was released today, it would have been released as a box set. They, they wouldn't have spread this out over four months. But that being said, you know, there's something to be said about you know cliffhangers that lead you on to the next story, and, lo- mm. and lots of rages used to do that. Which I know p- people tend to just binge things now. But yeah, this, the one a month. I was so excited each month when this was coming out. I'm waiting for the next mm. one to come. Waiting for my yeah. CD to arrive. It was agony. Back in those days, back before you had oh, yeah, actually, it was before downloads, wasn't it? Before downloads, so I was waiting in the mm. post for it to come, and it was so exciting just you know, you know taking it out of, the, out of its case and popping it in the CD player, which I don't think I even own a CD player anymore. It, it was great, and yeah, so but there all those links together, all those yeah, very very exciting bits and pieces, and I think I think this is probably my favorite too, but I think because it captures. It is kind of standalone. You could sort of get away with it, but there's lots of links as well. So, yeah, I, it's I, not I don't really. think. No, you're right. I don't not think you could listen to any of these actually by themselves. You really do need the whole series. The, the, probably the fourth story is the most standalone-ish, but even that has lots of links to what's happened before that you won't understand unless you've listened to all of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's have a listen to what uh, writer David Bishop has to say about this story. No, you, you went a lot more global with this. So you had Italy, Florence, so Italy, Antarctica. Um, you had um, Florida, space. So was it, yep. were there all your locations you, you chose in terms of where you wanted to go? Was John suggesting places to be? Oh, it's a good question. I can't honestly remember. I mean, I absolutely wanted it to, if not be like Sarah Jane's greatest hit, but there was the capacity to do callbacks. Hence Antarctica and, you know, um, obviously the callback to Seeds of Doom, Doom. Death. I Doom. Doom. I never remember which one's which. Um, uh, so that was a deliberate callback to that. And that was also inspired, there's a great graphic novel by Greg Rucker and Steve Lieber called Whiteout, which is about a US marshal in Antarctica and there's a murder mystery and they have to go around and solve it. Turned into a not-so-good film starring Kate Beckinsale which I cannot really recommend, I have to say, but it's a great graphic novel. Um, so I was very inspired by that and sort of to tell a story set in Antarctica and that would dig into what they obviously had, didn't have the budget to do when they were doing Seeds of Doom. Doom? Doom. Yes, Doom. Death's the Ice Warriors with Patrick Trafford. Death's the Ice Warriors. I can never get the two sorted in my head. Um, Green so, monsters. yeah, so obviously, you know, what they did in in Seeds of Doom, you know, it's like, you know, polystyrene balls in a studio at the BBC. It's not the most convincing version of the Antarctic ever seen uh, on screen. I believed it, can I say? I believed it was filmed. <laughs> I, as a kid, I believed it was filmed there. They, they're such good cold acting. <laughs> yes, with the beach ball. Um, uh, so, yeah, so it was... You know, and a chance to play with all our expectations that come with that. Oh, is it going to be the chronology? What have they found under the ice? Are we doing our version of the thing from another world again? So it was a is is a way to do callbacks to the past, sort of a nod to to people who loved Sarah Jane from her time with the Doctor, and use expectations and then subvert those expectations. Do you think it's going to be one thing? It could be another. Um, so the Antarctic was a very deliberate setting. Uh, Florence was obviously because of my passion for Renaissance Florence and then the callbacks to to Mask. And then into space, it felt like it was a chance. I mean, at that point, space tourism was only talked about 
they were trying to get it together, people, SpaceX and things like that. We were working towards space tourism, but it was still a gleam in the eye of the wonderfully named Bert Bruton, no relation, um, who, uh, and they were busy trying to get space tourism up and running at that point because I think the shuttle had blown up and whenever it was, 2003. Um, and so was it? When was it? Well, a Challenger, and then the the second one blew up because it was the second one went up. Oh, um, yeah, two went up. Because it was eighty five, eighty six is Challenger, and then another one went up in the early two thousands, and that just killed the space program. And then we got to space tourism. Um, so yeah, so it was obviously that was coming. So it was a way to sort of future proof the story and go, oh well, this is what it's going to be like. And when I did the research, was slightly dismayed to discover that space tourism at that point was basically they were just going to fly up leave the atmosphere for about 30 seconds and then just come back down again and that was the level of the ambition of space tourism they weren't planning to send teslas to mars or anything else at that point in history for better or for worse um but it seemed like it was the idea we could get sarah back into space again sort of back where she belongs or back where you know we know her best so it was the chance to to play with some of these motifs of the sarah jane story over the years and over the decades and take her full circle and make her confront all these things about herself and about her history with the doctor without saying the words, the doctor. So is Liz Sladen once again, approving all your scripts and giving you notes on them all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was, I definitely had notes and that's how the first story was, was, was kicked into touch. The original first story was rightly kicked into touch. Um, and, uh, not so phased. Yeah, so it's, yeah. And there was a lot of talk about what had Sarah been doing in the meantime and the idea that not everything has to have a, a big global scale. The whole fate of the world doesn't have to be at stake in every story, you know. So there was talk, maybe she got involved with good causes or wildlife or the environment. Um, hence, we get to this notion of her living in a caravan on the coast and how the small things are as important as the big things. It's not just about saving the world every story doesn't have to be about saving the world and it should be a scale that reflects who sarah jane is so an awful lot of that was coming from liz so i think um yeah and john working with liz and wanting to sort of you know respect her wishes and make her happy and give her stories that she wanted to be able to you know be enthusiastic about uh, of course when all of this was in development which is 2005 we didn't realize she was going to be back on tv as as Sarah Jane in, in School Reunion, um, which uh, they were filming that while while they were recording the second series of the audio dramas. It was sort of this shuttle diplomacy was going on. I think there was even a point at one stage where we weren't sure if the second season was going to go ahead or not, whether it was going to be kicked into touch by School Reunion. I mean, in the end, School Reunion came out you know, long after these four stories came out. And yeah, they, and they, once yeah. Again, they, don't, they don't contradict each other at all, so they work quite well that way. Now, Natalie is only a piece of story one, story four. Was that a choice that you made, or was it a decision that you wanted to it was be used less? Um, I'm now I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, I I can't remember. John probably going to be will have a better memory of why she isn't in all those stories. I get. It, well, I personally felt that figuring out, well, obviously, Nat is, there's some practical difficulties having somebody in a wheelchair going to the Antarctic for a start. 
um, because the Antarctic is not really designed to be wheelchair accessible. That's not the nature of it. Um, so it created difficulties with some of the stories that we were looking to tell. But I can't remember whether whether Sadie was available or not, what, what was going on with her at that point in her life and whether or not that was going to work. So it was trying to find the, the balance. And also with the injection of Harry's brother, you start to end up with a big cast of companions and that pulls focus as well. So I think it was trying to find the right balance. I can't call off the top of my head whether Nat was only going to be plugged into certain stories or not. And it was trying to figure out that. And also having Nat separate from Sarah and the two of them being somewhat estranged and then coming back together at the end gave us another arc to tell over the course of the four stories. We're not going to major spoilers, but I mean, there's the through lines based on the masculine Dragora and Sarah yes, having meetings. Yes, I've gotten that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so yes, because Sarah had met, um, I forget what his name was. Um, back in Musk and Dragora, and she told him things he'd recorded, what she'd said, and anything he, she could, he could, she mentioned about the future, he'd recorded, which what, what became the prophecy, which went forward. Um, so, so she, it was kind That's of her, clever, isn't it? Yeah. It was very clever. So I was sorry, is that your, was that you, or was that who's who brought in the who brought in the Mandragora? Um, I can't honestly say it was definitely me, but I think David and I, and to some extent Liz, had a lot of conversation about it um so it so it's hard to actually pinpoint whose idea was what in the end if you see what i mean you know you sort of bouncing ideas off each other all the time uh, and out of that you know comes the the sort of concepts but yes now you've mentioned the masculine drag i i, me- I think I remember thinking that was a good sort of a lead from it which i liked uh, so i would certainly have encouraged david to go along that, those lines Yes, that's right. I've forgotten that. Gosh. So you also bring in Harry Sullivan's brother. What did you need a Harry character? Was that why you did? It? Yes, I think. I mean, obviously, ideally, it would have been Harry himself. I think uh, had had Ian been alive. Um, I, yeah, I think we decided we wanted, you know, this other character, um, and I think we toyed around with that a little bit about who that could be, and we we settled on. Hammy's brother. Was um, Tom Chadbon always uh, your first choice for the role? I can't remember seriously considering anyone else. I mean, I hadn't worked with Tom before. I think we probably went with Tom, but well, A, he's good, and, and B, obviously, he's got that sort of Doctor Who connection, um, even though it's not with Liz's era. Uh, so, yeah. I was very happy to work with him. He was very nice and good fun to work with. He was very shy when he first turned up. I remember that, being surprised at how shy he was. And then, um, uh, but he seemed to soon get over that. And we all we all got on well. <laughs> he was disappointed. Oh, well, I'm giving it away actually, but he's he's not in the final episode, is he? So, uh, and um, he was a bit disappointed by that. <laughs> so you bring back both Natalie and Josh from season one. Yes. So, what, what was the decisions in terms of because because Josh probably Josh gets a much a very large character arc throughout the stories. Um, was it what was the decision in terms of how you're going to use Josh and that? Was there much discussion in terms of how this should fit in? And in, in the end, Nat's only in two. You know, Sadie's only in story one and story four. Yes, I think that 
yeah, I think that was sort of decided quite early on about that. Uh, not because of any sort of um, we didn't like the character or anything, but I think it, 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 because we'd sort of got um, Tom Chadman in as well. You know, it was it's a question of how many characters and how many actors as well. I mean, there's a, there are budget constraints as well, so I think it just sort of worked out like that. But that was sort of decided on quite an early stage that that would actually only be in a couple of them. Um, which I'm sure Sadie was fine about, I think, so, yeah. A few things that you did a bit differently with this series was you had the framing device of previously and next times, which is actually very unusual for Big Finish to make such an important part of previously and next times. Right. Had you been aware that, was it it a deliberate choice, or were you even aware that you'd done it? I must admit I'd forgotten that we did that, to be honest, but but I can see why we would have done it. I think because I was quite aware that... It, it was an ongoing story, you know, so each episode um, made contributions to the story arc. And I suppose I was considering the possibility that someone might pick up episode three, having not heard episode one and two. Um, and of course, they released, what, were they one month apart each? I can't remember. Did we do them monthly? Yeah, I can't monthly. remember. So, you know, maybe people just need reminding. I mean, I, I quite appreciate you know, previously on uh, recaps, you know, when I watch a TV show or, or, or listen to something, just to sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's where we were. That's what was important, you know, sort of thing. In terms of Sarah visiting places, you go to Italy, you go to Antarctica, you go to space. Um, yep. Was the decision that you wanted to make the whole series a lot more global? Yes, you know, I, uh, you saying that does remind me that I think I was that was something I was particularly keen about. I wanted it to sort of travel around to different locations, um, not just feel like it's just made in the home counties sort of thing, and uh, you know, give it a more international feel. I think that was quite deliberate, and I suspect something that Liz was quite keen on as well. Yeah, the casting is just amazing. Ton Chapman, Jacqueline Pierce, Stephen Greif. Um, some of the, some of the guest cast you bring in uh, is casting. Was that your job to do the casting? Yes, because I was. I mean, I was producer, but I was I was director as well for all of them. So yeah, I was. Uh, I did all the casting. I think yeah. Um, I'm obviously apart. You know, uh, Nat and um, Sadie and Jez. Jez, yeah, Sadie and Jez. Oh, he was he's J- Jeremy James, according to the cast list. Jeremy James, yes, as he was then. But uh, yeah, but I mean, I'd worked with I'd worked with Jez a lot on on Josh Dredd as well, so I was very familiar with him. Uh, I hadn't worked with Sadie before, but that was very nice. Um, but you know, obviously, they came with the uh, the characters that had already been established. But everyone else, yes, I cast Jacqueline. I'd known um, for a long time as a friend. Um, I remember being a little bit apologetic apologetic that it was a little bit too servalanish the role that I gave her you know I, was, I felt I was guilty of typecasting her and uh but yeah she was fine about that so yes um I'm not sure that Jacqueline ever so I was gonna say I'm not sure she ever got a role that wasn't um serverland like after serverland was there because even if there was she still played it even Chessine in Doctor Who <laughs> um I was thinking she, no. um, the the, the monger. I think she felt there was an expectation there for, and in the roles that she was given. I mean, she would like to have, I, I know she would have welcomed something radically different, you know. Um, it was interesting because uh, when when she died and I 
I held a sort of um, memorial for her and I put together a load of video clips from her career. And I realised actually everything before Serverland, or a lot of things before Serverland that she did in film and, you know, like the Hammer films and things like that, she played far more um, vulnerable characters, you know, almost the opposite of Serverland. You know, she was quite... Um, a timid and vulnerable side of it and then as soon as Serverland happens you know her her, her her television roles became all sort of Serverland similar I think really um and I was and there was me being guilty of it again asking her to play the keeper and doing the same sort of thing but there we go she didn't complain too hard I <laughs> courtesy of Big Finish magazine Jacqueline Pierce. Well, I played Serverland in Blake 7, and when John phoned me up to ask me to do this, he said, I'm sorry, darling, it's Serverland Mark 8. <laughs> Which it is, of course, but I don't mind at all. But first of all, I thought he'd said Margate. I said, what do you mean Serverland Margate? <laughs> Serverland by the sea. So what did you think of the makeup of the second season and the stories they did? I thought it was actually far stronger. Um and again, it's no no critique of the first one. The first one is what it is. But diff- I think this is a very different premise. The series two. I think um, I think if you're coming at it having listened to series one, expecting the same sort of thing, you're not going to get it. And I think you'll 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 be quite surprised. I think it's a lot bolder. It's harder. Um, it's a it's a lot more sinister. I mean, obviously, a lot of these things are are built upon the sinister, but this one is. Uh, you know, quite literally out of this world. It's um, it it, it has a, a wider remit, um, and it has more breadth. And as I say, with a one writer, you have that ability to 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 know the safety of you can you can. This this doesn't end for that writer, uh, you know, on on page one hundred and twelve. It, uh, it it ends for them on page four hundred and eighty, and and it was all leading up to this sort of extraordinary. Um, Inclusion, um, which which I which I do re- remember with enormous clarity, actually, because it was it was it was quite an emotional um, situation in in the studio. It was like, I, I mean, I've never been on a obviously, I've never been on a soap opera that's run for forty years and been part of it all, and then, you know, everyone stops crying and having a breakdown at the end of it, losing their hair and things like that, you know. Um, but there was the the conclusion of the story was I didn't expect it. Um, when I read it, I went, what? No, it's, you can't, do, ooh, he's done it. Um, and, you know, and then that happening at the same time as knowing that that was the 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 final, you know, chunk to be recorded and, and sort of everyone going, wow, this was really intense because it was, it was really intense. Um, it m- made something incredibly memorable. I, I had to, I had to cry. I had to cry. I don't think I've had to cry on. I don't think I've ever had to cry on audio. If I don't, I think that was the only time that it was entirely appropriate to have a complete breakdown. Um, and and yeah, it was. Uh, I, I I loved it. I thought it was. Oh my god! It's actually, it's it's emotional depth. It's some. It's got to come from somewhere real. It's um using those skills that people talk about with acting and you go, Oh, okay. So it's possible then it's, it's, it's real. And yeah, I, I just remember everyone being really nice about it. Are you all right? Like, well, yes, <laughs> I'm fine. I had to, I had to try and make that happen in my head. And, um, and then it just went, 
just uh yeah i think that was one of my favorite it's one of my favorite experiences with the with the whole of my big finish career actually all right the third story in sarah jane smith series two is fatal consequences sarah jane smith has been attacked stalked and shot by the acolytes of a doomsday cult when she tries to turn the tables sarah discovers the crimson chapter has a weapon that could claim millions of lives and her own actions may have instigated their genocidal plan. Here are the headlines at midday. A medical research centre in Berkshire says it's close to synthesising an antidote for the deadly Marburg virus. The head of research at Pangbourne Scientific Laboratory, Dr Gavin Dexter, calls the serum a major breakthrough. These are colleagues of mine, Dr Dexter. Whatever you have to say to me can be said in front of them. We've been pushed into using extreme, unethical methods to achieve quick results. But the antidote could endanger countless lives in the future. I can't be a party to that anymore. Dexter's not telling us everything. I didn't tell him everything I knew either. He works for Mandrake, so he's linked to Ray Chauffeur. He could well be part of the Crimson Chapter himself. Don't blame yourself for the actions of madmen. I have to. I'm at the centre of events I can't understand, let alone control. No, it has to stop. But first, we need to find out just who's behind all this. You found out about Pangbon's connection with the Chauffeur, haven't you? Well, you mean Mandrake. New name, same old tricks. We've isolated a variant of Marburg that replicates at nearly 50 times the virus's usual speed. Well, that means it'd incubate in hours instead of days. Exactly. Sir Donald? For the past 24 hours, you've been trying to get the attention of the white chapter of the Orbis Postremo. And have I got it? I offer you a deal, Miss Smith. Your life in exchange for all those outside. And why should I believe you? Your beliefs are immaterial. You're already dying, Miss Smith. You've nothing to lose. So what you're saying is that the Crimson Chapter will wipe out everyone on this planet simply to prove themselves right. Genocide will be committed in your name, Miss Smith. And only you can stop it. Fatal Consequences, the facts and the trivia. Number 2.3 in the Sarah Jane range story code was SJ08 written by David Bishop directed and produced by John Ainsworth starring Elizabeth Sladen and Joey James with Tom Chadburn and Jacqueline Pierce. recorded the 23rd of November Doctor anniversary 2005 released March 2006 music theme and sound design by Steve Foxton recorded the most studios Stephen Greif is best known for playing Commander Travis in the series Blake 7 and we spoke to him before uh, his passing in episode 70 and also the tribute episode uh, episode 143 go back and have a listen this was the only day of recording that writer David Bishop could attend as he was studying for his MA in screenwriting at the time and Tom Chatterbon was disappointed to discover he wasn't returning for the final story uh, he also offered Elizabeth Sladen's a um, acting note which apparently she kind of took okay it's a bit hard to say with the story but um, yeah, handing out notes to the lead actress isn't always the best thing to do as a guest star. And that's the facts of the trivia. Okay, so things are ramping up now. I, I kind of... This was around the same time as Da Vinci Code, wasn't it? It was. Da Vinci Code. So it's got that kind of a feel about it. I wonder if David was inspired by that. Because at the time, that was huge. Yeah. I mean, so certainly episode one was is, is the most Da Vinci Code-ish. Mm. 
but in terms of the accolades we've got, and we, what's going you know, on. We've got secret societies and yep. chapters and, you know, warring factions and things like that. And uh, at this stage, the the other Doctor Who elements are really coming to the fore in this one. So we, we know for a fact by now who uh, who all these factions are. Can we spoil it now? Or is it too big to spoil? Uh, I don't know. I was, I was trying to work out how much we would bring spoilers or not. Okay, so if anyone doesn't want to be spoiled, go and skip forward a couple of minutes because um, we're, I, want to, I want to mention that this is bringing in elements from the Mask of Mandragoras. All these secret societies are all based on things that happened back then in that story. With uh, Is it the diaries, the diaries of Duke, Duke Giuliano? That's right. He, he recorded Sarah's visits and made, made a whole mess of that history because of it. Yeah. Yeah, so all that's uh, coming and all these various chapters interpret the diary entries differently and uh, therefore they have their own uh, beliefs and mission, so, shall we say. So um, the Fatal Consequences is dealing with the, with the machinations of the Crimson chapter of the Orbis Postremo, I think it's called. Whereas uh, they don't, they don't, they avoid calling it Demnos, the cult of Demnos, which is basically what it is, isn't it? It, it is. I'm, I'm oh, no, that, no, it's not the cult of Demnos. No, it's, not. It's, it's something different. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that was, it is different. Hmm. Anyway, it's all based on on the diary entries of of Giuliano. So uh, I, I find that fascinating, and the way it's been weaved into the arc is just is really nice. Yeah, I. It just makes this seem such a Doctor Who story. Without the Doctor, doesn't it? Yep, definitely. Um, I guess in some ways this is probably the most similar to the first series in terms of you've got a bit more of a uh, environmental story going on, you've got protests happening, those sort of ideas, but you also have a very big climax again, which you know will have big consequences. And a terrorist threat. And a terrorist threat. So yeah, so this, this is some more of the of the links to sort of what was going on in the first series. Actually, it's probably a lot like David Bishop's story from the first series. And Which yeah, is, he wrote the terrorist one in, in series he wrote, one. Didn't he wrote he? the terrorist one in the first series, and that was the one that Elizabeth Sladen liked the best. Which is why mm-hmm. David Bishop was asked to come back. So I think this this is capturing some of the stuff from his first series. Though what's interesting is, of course, same writer for four stories, but each story is a very different setting, location, and even a slightly different feel. So he doesn't mm-hmm. just reproduce the same thing four times. But this is the one that probably has the, the most links to his first series story. And yeah, some some great characterizations, and once again, those character arcs. This is very character driven, and where it takes some of those characters to is a bit of an ugly place for some of them. Absolutely, because this is the Josh Townsend episode where everything just blows up right at the end, isn't it? Yeah, and this this is certainly fairly black in terms yep. of this is sort of the blackest that Sarah Jane will go. And certainly, when this, the TV series comes back, being a kids series. It's a much lighter view, but this is we're now heading into fairly black territory with Sarah Jane and probably the blackest we ever get. Absolutely. All right, let's hear from David Bishop, the writer of this story, once again. And of course, Josh would have a very big character growth throughout the four stories. Um, was that was that your choice? You, you sort of um, went backwards and re- redid a few things, you know, created a few things with the first season which weren't really there. So you retconned Josh a bit in the second season. Was that your choice? Oh, now you're asking. Okay, let me have a look at my notes and I'll give you a better answer to this. Okay, it says here, uh, Josh, in the first story, he continues his role as the glue that holds Sarah's team together, the wisecracking working-class rogue with a bit of form and a good heart. 
but even he cannot keep Sarah and Nat together, and Josh is less than impressed when Sarah introduces a newcomer to the team. Uh, in the second story, Josh butts heads with Sarah's new best friend, uh, feeling threatened by their education and intelligence. Josh proves his value to Sarah, ensuring he remains part of the team. Does he have another motive for staying by her side? In the third story, Josh begins acting increasingly strangely, distrustful and openly antagonistic, questioning Sarah's judgment. When it becomes apparent one of them is a traitor, Josh takes it upon himself to confront the other person. Uh, and then, yeah, with fatal consequences. Oh, golly, okay. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, whereas Nat, after four years of being Sarah's personal almanac, wow, uh, this is obviously private notes, um, Nat wants to change. In the first story, she volunteers. Oh, so this is it. So she was going to volunteer for a revolutionary new medical treatment. Anyway, it all goes wrong, and she exits. Originally, the plan was Nat was simply going to exit the series at the end of the first story. That was the original plan. Uh, and instead, we brought her back for the final story to sort of pull the, the arc together. Um, but yeah, the I always had the idea, it was sort of explaining why does Josh hang around with Sarah? Why is he, you know, at her side through all of these things that are going to happen? And it was very much, I think a lot of this was informed by, uh, I've got a description here. Uh, the traitorous survivor reveals their true colours like Nina in 24. So I've been watching an awful lot of the TV series 24 at this point. I was you devastated when Nina went bad, can I just say? I didn't see it coming. It was such a shock. I'm still trying to figure out how Sam Ganji is able to hold his breath for two and a half minutes while running around inside the nerve gas space. But that's a separate story, line, obviously. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I think I was very much enthralled to 24 storytelling and everybody's got some hidden agenda, secret conspiracy, who's on whose side over here. And then we end up with the, the two chapters and in conflict with one another. So there was a little bit of um, alias was another inspiration for this. Uh, for that ongoing story thread that runs through it. And the idea that Josh has got skin in the game, being willing to sacrifice himself to say because he believes the prophecy involved and many things off ultimately. So that was always the trajectory for Josh's character in series two, was to give him somewhere to go and to give him a reason for his actions. Now, those, those two just really were fabulous. But they, those your original notes or was those notes John gave to you about where to go? Um, well, we've got two documents here. We've got the, my original plot lines, and then we've got notes, fresh notes on SJS2. Uh, and those are notes which I'll have taken from John, which will be combined from John and uh, Liz. Um, yeah. Harry is missing for years, considered dead by, no, by most, but not Sarah, which is why she goes to this place and has the dinner. Uh, when they toasted the good old days, and she's mysterious about that. Um, uh, news reporter, da, da, da. yeah. So yeah, so those are notes that have come on. It was going to be four years in between. I think we cut that down to, to two years rather than four years between series one and series two was the other thing that's been happening in the meantime. So yeah, those are notes from John and Liz. So there was a decision taken not to do anything with Hilda, just to kill her off in the first 10 seconds? Yeah, no, that was that was that was one of the givens that was handed to me when when I started was uh, the whole Miss Winters storyline. They weren't bringing Miss Miss Winters back. We were just going to write her straight out immediately at the beginning. I was like slightly disappointed, 
um, because I I should I love the character in, in Robot and and um, also I didn't really get to write it from memory and test nerves. I think um, Peter did in in the final story, but I never got that chance. And I was quite looking forward to writing a, a good Miss Winter story. The problem with that was it was going to we basically we we're going to have to devote the whole of the first story to tying up plot threads from the first series and the first season and then restart the engines from story two. So it felt like you either just nixed her in the first 10 seconds. Oh, by the way, she's dead. Move on. Uh, or the alternative was you had to give her an entire story to play that out. And the decision was made before I... That's actually very 24, isn't it? 24, you jump up, you know, you jump to the next season, suddenly... Five characters are blown up. The prison's dead, and you've moved on to the next. Yeah, that's very twenty-four-ish. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We just go. Yeah, two years later, she's dead. Move on. Uh, <laughs> you just go. Nah, we're not dragging those chains into this. We're gonna t- we're gonna tell a whole new story. I mean, it meant we had a completely clean slate. We could just say it's X years later. Sarah's over here. Uh, Matt's doing this. She's away somewhere else. Josh is still kicking around, but. Um, so you got a clean slate, so you could absolutely sort of say, right, we make our mark from story one, fresh story. Because the downside is if we'd done episode one as a as a Miss Winter, the, the, the final Miss Winter story, is that it feels like just hangover from the first series and it's harder for new new listeners or new buyers to come in and pick it up without having to then go back and buy the first series. You want to make it as available to everybody as possible, of course. Accessible to all. Now, very unusual for Big Finish at this time, and even still today, is that you, you're, all your episodes had previously on and next time on, um, at the start and beginning of every story, did you actually write those or did you decide which clips were going to be used for the previous season the next time? Because they really do hang the whole theme together. Yeah, I think I wrote those, actually. I think I actually did sit down and all write draft scripts for those um, because... And actually, they're really hard to do because <laughs> um, I, I would sit there with my scripts. And, <coughs> I mean, I would sit there with my script from the previous episode and go, OK, all right. So what did happen? What's the vital stuff? What's the material I want to pull out and have in the previously on so that you could absolutely listen to that without having to refer to the previous one? And you know that. And the downside with that, of course, is that oh, they've shown us this character from two years ago has suddenly reappeared in the previously on. So they're going to be back, aren't they? Um, but no, I quite I, I quite enjoyed writing those. I mean, again, it was part of the whole, you know, slightly 24-esque feel of things. And just the, I always wanted to have, you know, previously on Sarah Jane. That just appeals to the nerd in me, I have to say. It's interesting that now you've mentioned 24, I'm seeing so much... Um, in terms of how you did structure, pacing, the short scenes, um, yeah, and I guess that was that was the action adventure of the time. I mean, twenty four was just an example of it happening in many other places around the same time as that. Um, now, once again, amazing cast you got to got to play with. It's more of an ensemble piece as well. So you had you know Tom Chad Chadburn playing Will. You also had um, Jacqueline Pierce, Stephen Greif, um, you know, amazing David Goodison. Um, did, did you actually get to did you get to go to studio and watch any of this? I did. I was there for um, number th- is it number three that's fatal consequences? I guess it must be. Yeah. Um, 
yeah so yeah i was in the studio for uh for the bulk of the recording of fatal consequences what john did uh which was very canny in that he wrote he got me to write characters into there was a lot of overlap characters that appeared in multiple stories uh but there were only little bits of them and then they were principally in one story so he would have an actor come into the studio for the day and they were record all their bits in one day rather than have to get them back in for another day just to record one or two scenes um so we had so i was there uh the day when they were filming with tom chaborn and jacqueline pierce and and sarah jane so i i was there i was witness for the cat fight between serverland and sarah jane which was like chef's kiss moment as far as i was concerned um so yes and and jacqueline pierce had just come back from africa because she was very passionate about sort of uh, animal conservation and wildlife conservation and so she'd been over in africa and she came back and she had the most incredible tan and made everybody else look like you know the weeping angels by comparison everybody was like in scotland we would call them peely wily everybody was pasty and white and and jacqueline pierce looked like she just come from the sun she was just bronzed it was incredible um and yeah she was just amazing in the green room honestly the stories woof um but she was just wonderful to have around um and yeah so the day i went was mostly story 3 was being recorded um because they were recording in a block and i was like oh i definitely i want to be there come on jacqueline pierce who who does not want to be in the studio when jacqueline pierce is recording her stuff um because i've been down for I'm pretty sure I was there for the recording of Test of Nerve. Yeah, I know I was. I was I absolutely was. So yeah, so but I couldn't be there for the recording of all of the episodes for series 2. So I had to choose my day uh as best I could. So that was the one I went for. Um so yeah, no, it was amazing. So experiences like this for Stephen and Jacqueline um in those early years of Big Finish Black 7 was years away from being acquired by Big yes, Finish at that was, point. That so point. I guess the experiences that they had recording with you then laid a good groundwork for the future i guess so yes i mean but steven uh, i mean i'd known jacqueline i mean we were we were quite close friends for a long time anyway uh, long before uh, any of the big finish stuff steven guy i first met when i i interviewed him along with jacqueline and i think sally nevet and jan chapel at the blake seven convention um and bless him steven always seemed to remember that i think he liked the way i'd done it or whatever so when occasionally i would bump into him probably at conventions with jacqueline and he he would always remember me kindly so uh, and he and we did get him to do a role in um just red so i'd worked with him on that although i didn't direct that but i'd i'd met him so we sort of knew each other by the time he came to do sarah jane um which was nice so there was a sort of nice familiarity with him Yeah. And then of course yes, years later I end up finally directing Emma's Travis. Yeah. Long time late. Did you need to have them in studio very often because I don't usually back in these days with did you film each story as a separate story over days or did you actually tend to bring in cast and do some scenes and not need them? I mean Jacqueline Pease only has minor a few only a couple of scenes the first couple of CDs. Yes, that's right. I mean I uh yeah there was definitely a sort of main recording day for each episode so there would have been four studio days but for characters like Jacqueline's and I think David Goodison maybe as well um 
And some of the others had sort of minor roles or minor bits in, in, in So we would have recorded their scenes at the same time. I wouldn't have just bring, bring them back for those little bits, I think. Um, yeah, so Jacqueline would have recorded all her stuff in about uh, one or two days. Was she in two stories as a major character? I think she was, wasn't she? Yes. I can't remember now. W- yeah. One in particular. Well, no, really only just one major character. Right. That's the third one. So he probably did all of the stuff in one day, I would suspect. Yeah, I think so. But Stephen Greif, I'm pretty sure, came. He was in it two days. because He, he, he had lots of things in three and four. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, each 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 story had its main main recording day. Yeah. So in the end, we're happy with what was produced. Yes, I think so. Very much, actually. Um, it, it was a really good experience. Um, I liked all the stories. Uh, I remember number three. It was interesting. I remember number three was the one that Liz had the most reservations about, and I think number three is quite heavy in terms of explanations and you know plot revelations and i think liz felt she would she became a little bit sort of because she spends most of it in a big conversation with stephen greif i think doesn't she i think all the actions taking place with um uh jez yes really, back at back at back where the poison yeah the infections are happening and things that's right so it's sort of it's sort of, it's sort of outbreak outbreakish is what <laughs> very much like outbreak the film outbreak oh dustin, right dustin hoffman film with um <laughs> the monkey infecting everyone oh that's right yes of course yes yeah well i think i think liz was a little bit concerned that sarah was a bit sort of removed from you know the action side of thing however my recollection is on release that that number three was a particularly popular one that everyone seemed to really like that one um Maybe it was because of the revelations and stuff and things in it. I think my favourite one was um, the second one, Snowbound. In Antarctica. Yeah, I just really liked the way that one came together. And it's quite self-contained, that one. Um, I thought Nick Briggs was very good in it. Quite sinister. Um, And I love the little sort of uh, red herring that we put in that Sarah thought it was the crinoids. Uh, and then, of course, it turns out not to be. Um, yeah, I like that one. But I, 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 I think you know partly because of that sort of the global, you know, different locations. I think each one has a distinctly different feel, even though there is an overall story, and, which is definitely what I wanted. And I think we did achieve that. So I was, I was quite pleased about. Now, I believe one of the things that um, Liz wanted different from the first season was she. I think she felt the first season Sarah was a bit too paranoid and dealing with paranoia and she wanted her to be stronger so was Liz happy with in terms of where the direction went with the character I think so I do remember us having that conversation yeah that paranoia was a big part of the um the first series and I think both she and I felt well we've done that you know let's 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 change the gear a bit this isn't you know so we didn't want that to be the sort of permeating feel which hopefully we were successful about um I think we wanted her to be much more sort of confident and not looking over her shoulder all the time. Yeah, I do remember us having discussions about that. At what point during the recording of this, or was it beforehand, did you find out that Liz had been involved with filming in Cardiff and that Sarah Jane was coming back to the main programme? 
Uh, well, she certainly she told me before they filmed it. Uh, it would would have been during our discussions of uh, you know about scripts and things, and then she, yeah, she told me she was going to, and I think she she said she had a conversation with Russell T. You know, to tell him that she was doing these audios and she still wanted to do them, um, and wanted to make sure that was still okay. Uh, and then she went off and filmed it, and. Of course, she wasn't allowed us to, allowed to tell us anything about the story, but I was concerned that we didn't sort of contradict anything or duplicate anything. And I did say something. I said they don't kill you off, do they? She said no. She said I wouldn't let them kill me off. And uh, uh, and I remember there was a speech which in ours which referenced the Loch Ness Monster. And I remember she mentioned that to me. She said, oh, we do mention the Loch Ness Monster. So I, I don't know if we changed that or not, but as a result of that. But yeah, she, I, I didn't try and sort of get too much information out of her. And, um, but I always remember thinking, I thought, gosh, you know, I, I guess I half wouldn't have been totally surprised if given that she suddenly was back on television, doing that her attitude to the audience might have changed, you know, that they would become sort of less important but it didn't really and she she seemed to sort of treat them with equal importance almost you know which was great really from our point of view um she didn't seem to differentiate really, which was lovely she was probably able to have more say on the audio scripts than the television scripts maybe that's uh i would have thought so i mean I'm sure she gave her opinion about the TV script, or certainly would have done if she wasn't happy about it. Um, but yeah, I think she felt she was it was handled quite well uh, in terms of the character. Courtesy of Big Finish magazine, Sadie Miller and Jeremy James. I think it can only be described as a logical progression. There's no major character changes, really, just order and... Well, it's a bit, it seems like they've been out of the game for a while, doesn't it? Well, I don't think they've seen each other for a long time, have they? She's been off doing her archaeological stuff. Yeah, doing pathology, forensic pathology, so obviously That's she must have done that right. quite soon after the first one, if she's going to have studied at all. Yeah, she's obviously yeah. found a way to sort of get out there into the world rather than just being a brain in front of a computer. Yeah, and there's a lot less emphasis on Nat just being the one regurgitating all the information, which is nice. Josh has always been independent through necessity whereas you've gone out there and you're sort of doing your own thing you're not kind of going oh there's no no wheelchairs in the internet or this kind of thing. yeah <laughs> no i think it's quite easy though just to, to slip back into um <laughs> i agree yeah i don't think that they were pitched very far from who we are as people anyway well i was actually sort of talking about the um, amazing cast that you had uh, in the season so it's people like tom chadblon um yeah is there any memories you had with, with Tom or even Stephen Greif, Jacqueline Pierce? Um, yeah, um, all, all of the above. Um, um, Tom Chadbon, right? So I kind of, I sort of, um, I had a bromance with Tom Chadbon. We 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 hit it off straight away, um, and I don't quite, I don't quite know what it was about his and my dynamic that suddenly became like. I'd known him for years, but we had this weird, <laughs> brilliant, lovely, um, but sort of very sudden friendship that just came from nowhere. And I was I was working um, uh, backstage at Queen's Theatre for a little bit at the time, 
And I remember he used to drop in and, and and if he was passing or going on the way to a casting, he'd just pop in the stage door and say, oh, can just let Jez, Jez know that Tom came by to say hi. Um, and we were we were in touch by on email for a while, and it just you know just I've, after a few years it just goes. Sadly, um, I think he ended up doing a doing a cameo in Casino Royale with <laughs> James Bond. I think, it, um, but in the in the actual episode we're at loggerheads, and that actually made it made it even more brilliant. But, you know, because we 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 liked each other so much, we could really rip into each other quite viciously. Um, and yeah, it was what 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 a what a nice bloke. Really, really good guy. I, 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 I hope he's all right. I don't know where he is. Yeah, and I remember um, the guy that worked at the stage door at the Queen's is actually, I've already mentioned him today, Mark Donovan. He, and he's obviously another, another voice actor. And um, he was just amazed to see Tom Chadbourne come sort of waltzing in and going, hello, is Jez around? And, uh, and I wasn't around. I was doing something downstairs and I came up and Mark said, Tom Chadbourne, you want to explain this one? And I'm like, oh yeah, we we made we made friends. He's a good lad. Yeah, but he was in City of Death. I went, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, it was all I could do to stop myself saying bye, bye, Duggan, as he walked off. I was like, I don't know what you mean. But then I looked, I watched the episode, and it became obvious he was making a funny joke. But yeah, Tom Chapel, absolutely legend. Um, um, Steve Steve Greif, um, who who I I actually known not just from Travis, but he played this part in Linda Laplante's comics, and I was completely obsessed with that 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 um, series. And and he was the the kind of evil overlord and um, mercantile crime, and he was so brilliant and sinister in it. Then when he then when he walked through the door, I went, <laughs> and then um, but then we got talking about Peter Wingard. Actually, this is the through line to the interviews. Peter Wingard, and he said, "Oh, um, no, 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 no. He's a because everyone said he was dead, and I was Gary Russell said, oh, Peter, I think Peter Wingard died a few years ago.' I was like." Oh, that's boring. What? Oh. And then Steve, Steve, Steve Greif goes, no, 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 no. Um, I'll, I'll dig out his address for you if you like. And he, he, go, and he, he gave me his address. So, so I ended up, I ended up posting him a card through his door. Um, but he was very nice. And um, then he actually auditioned for Judge Dredd um, as he auditioned for Judge Dredd as Judge Dredd. And he came in dressed as Clint Eastwood. It was very funny. Um, but that role obviously ended up going to Toby. Um, he was obviously brilliant. And um Jacqueline Pierce. Wow. Crikey. What uh she's um whew. she's a, she, I mean, she was so um naughty, really naughty, but but in a in a much more kind of sexy way than Colin Baker was naughty. Colin Baker wasn't sexy with being naughty, you see. That's the important distinction. <laughs> Whereas Jacqueline Pierce was just hilarious and um, smutty <laughs> and uh, but absolutely delicious. And um, oh, what a character. Like, she just, charismatic, doesn't doesn't really cover it. Um and she was brilliant in the and and her and her and her and Liz had a really nice time together as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we I was I was really lucky. I got to I got to spend some time with um, some really really tremendous actors that, with wonderful stories to tell and brilliant characters. And I was just lapping it up, really, just sort of drinking it all down and thinking what a, what a lucky lad I was to be part of it already. And I, and that's that's broadly how I feel about the whole situation now. Do you remember? Uh, noticing any difference between John Ainsworth's style of running the show and Gary's? 
<laughs> yeah, probably. Um, well, they're, they're two very different blokes. I mean, there's they're well, they're not chalk and cheese by any stretch of the imagination. But um, what's the difference between John and Gary? I mean, I thing is, I got on really well with both of them, so I didn't know. I, I think you'd have had to have come at it from not knowing either of them. And I, because I spent quite a lot of time with both of them in different circumstances, I kind of didn't really notice the difference. I know there is one, but it's hard to, it's hard to describe what it is. Gary's very, okay, no, actually there is probably something. Gary's very hands-on. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean John is laissez-faire, but Gary's very involved. Um, and, He's kind of he takes ownership. There's there's the difference. Um, Gary Russell is much more of an owner, and John Ainsworth is much more of a facilitator, and and both very very good to have, just totally different styles. There you go. So working with an ensemble cast a lot in the last season. So did you was it recorded four days straight? Had because I, I believe the first season was so, you know some was a month later after they'd filmed other ones. Was this done much more as a piece? I, I remember it was a lot more intense. I think it was, I think it, we, we did it in the space of a week. Yeah. Um, whereas the other one was like a two days here, two days there over the course. No, I don't think it was, I don't think it stretched over months. I think it was over the course of three or four weeks. Um, and then I think it was, I think we did two days on each episode. So yeah. So 10 days in, in, in a month, but I'm pretty sure that season two, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I remember it being intense. So I think it must've been, four or five i think we did five days actually i think we did a monday to friday uh because then you need the extra day for for pickups and ensemble noises and stuff like that i, I think i think we did it over five days the website says the first two were recorded on uh, two days one after the other and then yeah. the second two were that was the early november and then late november uh, 2005 uh, okay. the, the second two were done two days after in, in a two-day session okay so there were so so we did two and two okay okay makes yeah. sense yeah, I, I don't. It was, I, don't I don't. I don't remember last night. Um, but um, yeah, no. I mean, it was. I just remember the the. the maybe it was just because a lot of it was crammed in. Maybe I'm just remembering the last two days because I remember going, "Whoa, that was a." I'm being completely, super tired after the end of it, and just kind of almost falling asleep in in my chair in the pub afterwards. Um, just. Uh, just remembering that it was visceral and I, and I ex expended quite a lot of energy. I think I actually pulled a muscle at one point, um, just kind of ex exuding kind of some crazy sort of um, desire to make my emotion as, as um, visible, audible rather as possible. I've done that a few times. I've, I've pulled muscles like dying in, um, you know, being crushed to death by, whoever and just and i've kind of strangled myself and people are looking in the booth going what's he doing has he thought of acting <laughs> yeah it was, it was very intense i remember that all right so we've reached the final story in this series dreamland once again written by david bishop and here is the blurb Sarah Jane Smith is still dealing with the tragic consequences of recent events when she is offered the chance of a lifetime a place on the world's first tourist flight into space. The trip sponsor, Sir Donald Wakefield, believes it is her destiny. But after her recent experiences, what does Sarah still believe in? 
Here are the headlines at midday. The world's first space tourism flight has been cleared for liftoff next month. Meanwhile, astronomers have been surprised by the discovery of a previously unrecorded comet approaching the Earth. It's as if my past is coming back to haunt me. A few careless words at the wrong time and now... Since leaving UNIT, it seems that you've been looking for one last great adventure. I don't know what you're talking about. I can see it in your eyes, Sarah. The quiet terror you keep buried. Deep down, you suspect you've been chosen for something special. That you still have a destiny to fulfill, and that terrifies you. Come with me on the Dauntless. Confront your destiny, and see this through to the finish. I used to travel with this extraordinary friend. Deep down, I've always wondered if he left me here for a reason. But I never knew what it was. Maybe this is it now. And maybe it isn't. But I need to have something to hope for again. Something to believe in. Mission Control to Valiant. You're looking good. Looking good. Valiant has left the ground. Congratulations. You're on your way into space. This is Mission Control. The Dauntless has begun its maiden voyage. Ignition plus 10 seconds. Dauntless is accelerating. Plus 15 seconds. Speed passing a thousand miles an hour. Plus 20 seconds. We're 16 miles above the Earth. I can hear you, Matt. Sarah, you spent your whole life fighting injustice. You're a crusader. My crusading days are over. Dreamland, the facts of the trivia. Number 2.4 in the Sarah Jane Smith range. The story code was SJ09. Written by David Bishop, directed and produced by John Ainsworth. Starring Elizabeth Sladen and Jeremy James, and Sadie Miller with Stephen Greif. Recorded 24th of November 2005 and released April 2006. Music theme and sound design by Stephen Foxton. Recorded at Moat Studios. The idea to focus on space tourism came from Elizabeth Sladen herself, and very predictive of what would be coming today. The lead lady actually had more say in these, these scripts than any previous lead that the, the, the writer or producer had worked with. The cliffhanger ending was huge. At the time, there were no plans for a third series, and the writer had no plans for how it would be resolved. A year after recording these episodes, Elizabeth Slater would bring Sarah Jane Smith back to television in the Sarah Jane Smith Adventures, and for five years, until her death, she would be loved by a whole new generation but also it made it impossible for her to get back to be finished to record more Sarah Jane Smith adventures. So yeah, you mentioned the cliffhanger, Philip, and that was the huge, huge moment in this one. I've got to say at the time, I was hoping for a third series. And I I remember them saying there wasn't any plans for a third series and I didn't like it. I remember not liking it. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) I'm really not quite sure why you would do a cliffhanger like they did with no plans for a third series. And, and as I said, I mean, I was amused by the fact that, you know, David Bishop had no idea how to get out of it. <laughs> um, but I mean, but that being said, we had a huge cliffhanger at the end of season one and within a couple of lines, it was, oh, they're, they're dead, it's all over. So, yeah, oh, she's back on Earth and it's all fine. Anyhow, it's interesting. But yeah, that, that cliffhanger sort of why it sticks in the memory. And I guess it's a bit like the Blake 7 ending of the series. When you have a really powerful ending, it often makes the series live on all the better. Of course, this story has a lot more than just a huge cliffhanger. It, it again, has so many character pieces. 
and characters learning to deal with each other, trust each other, and some revelations about relations and who's connected to who and in what ways. So it, it does explore grief a bit, it explores death a bit, it explores character. There's a lot happening again with this backdrop of this going to space. And I guess, you know, Sarah Jane Smith back in space, lovely place for her to be. What other thoughts do you have about this? I think the star of this story for me was the character of Josh. Uh, and it was almost like it was a bit of a, a redemption story for him. Uh, he was he was trying very hard because even though he was put in the position, as we find out through the story, to sort of keep an eye on Sarah Jane, um, he he had a genuine attachment and fondness for her. So the so the happy, jolly, Jez Fielder like character of Josh Townsend that we had at the start of series one mm. was now something much much deeper. He was the same person, but he had much more depth, and he was trying to. Yeah, I think he was trying to redeem himself in in Sarah Jane's eyes. He wanted he wanted her approval, and yeah. that's what he was trying to do in this story. Yeah, I think yeah. the character arc of Jez, as I said, is just so Joshua, played by Jez, is amazing, and I think the acting ability of Jez really comes out in these stories. So, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting as he's yeah as, as you said, we we've interviewed him before too. He, no form, real formal acting training, but you can really see he has a lot of ability and. During the course of these nine stories, yeah, you know, a very, very competent, skilled actor, and you really believe in him. And and I think because we love Sarah Jane so, Smith so much, we want her and him to be reconciled by the end. And once again, the cliffhanger plays into all that as well. Yeah. So uh, and we we have the big re- big reveal of uh, as you said of uh, the relationship between Stephen Greif's character and Jess Fielder's character. So that's uh, always interesting as well. When I say there was a big arc through, you, you're right. I'm just thinking about what you said before, how this is all, this is quite a standalone story, this one. So, um, yeah. But you cannot listen to any of these <laughs> and know what's going on, really, uh, apart from the first one, without, uh, without needing to know what, what happened previously. So mm. thank you, John Ainsworth, for putting on the previouslys. John? Senior producer now, come on. Come on, you can do that more with the box sets. <laughs> <laughs> At least between box sets. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, let's, have, uh, let's go back to David Bishop and, and hear his thoughts. So this is the before, before selfies. So did you get any photos with Jacqueline and the others? Uh, no, it's be- no. I, I've got one photo, which is, uh, which is Liz and Tom and Jacqueline in the studio. So I had one photo. And then the rest of the time they were busy working because they were, I mean, Big Finish does not muck around. They go like the clappers, it has to be said. I mean, they do an amazing lunch. Um, but when they're recording, they they don't muck about. There's not a lot of flab in the day, it has to be said. It's very fast moving. And because Liz is particularly has the bulk of, was in almost every scene, as a consequence, she's almost always in the booth, got the cans on and working. So there weren't a lot of breaks in traffic to take photos, unfortunately. I can't remember. I think we, they were still recording in Brixton at that point in a fairly rundown part of South London. Um, that was before they moved to the slightly more salubrious studios that, that Big Finish are in now. Um, so, yeah, so I've, no, I haven't got a selfie. I've got, I've got one photo of the three of them stood there clutching their scripts with a, a mic boom, and, and that's it. So, yeah, sadly, no mobile phone, no selfie. It, it, it did crack me up when I, when I went to the recordings, um, particularly for, for Test of Nerve, 
uh, because with Sadie there and she was playing the part of Nat because uh, the first time I met Liz Sladen, I think it was at a Doctor Who convention. I think it was in Manchester is my memory of it, maybe a Monopticon. And I was actually uh, interviewing her on stage and Sadie was there. So, oh God, this is the early 1990s, I guess it must have been. And Sadie can't have been much more than seven or eight at the time. And she was wearing a replica Andy Pandy outfit from uh, Hand of Fear. And she was there and was sat in the front row and came up and the, the you know, it was like an entire convention of everybody's heartbreaking going, oh, she's wearing the, the dungarees and the whole bit with the candy stripe. Um, so it was very odd to then meet her at least 10 years later and there she is recording and being the, playing the part of Nat and Test of Nerve. So, yes, I can't remember if I reminded her of that or not, but that was a, it was a weird sort of life going in full circle moment. Well, the first time I met Liz Sladen was at an Australian convention and Sadie also came out with her and she would have been about seven or eight at the same time. So, yes, I, 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 I remember Sadie's being a young child, but I haven't mentioned that to her. I was a bit of a young yes. child then too. <laughs> Bit older. Well, I went, God, I think the first proper Doctor Who thing I went to was Who Venture in Sydney in January 1990. And they had Katie Manning and Nicholas Courtney. Right. I was at that one. Yeah. In the in the sort of lecture theatre. Yeah. And, yes. and, was that Sydney Uni? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, yes. And, and Katie perched on Nick's knee for, for, for question and answers. I was yeah. there as well. I was in the front row for that one. I was in the back. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing in Australia then? Uh, I was on my way. I was I was emigrating to the UK. So I, I came over uh, and stopped with, uh, I had relatives who lived in Sydney and outskirts of Sydney. And then I and then I arranged it to go to Whovention on my way. So, yeah. We all book our holidays around Doctor Who events, don't we? <laughs> mm, oh, yes. My one regret about Snowblind is we needed one more cast member because it was kind of obvious who the, for me, it was slightly obvious who the bad guy was because we needed one more person to keep the mystery going a bit longer. It always frustrated me because the budget was so tight. So we had a very strict number of guest actors that you're allowed to have the story because the budget for, for the actors was so tight. So as a consequence, you had to make do with what you had. And me writing a, oh, my God, who done it? Who's the evil person? Mystery was slightly problematic if you don't have enough, you know, red herrings of people available to be red herrings. So that was a slight frustration. But I did I did like it a lot. And and, and top, Tom Chabon was great in it. Um, I guess Nick Briggs, Nick, Nick Briggs was great in that too. He was actually, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, he plays that part really well. And because we sort of think Nick is mostly is like, you know, voices of Daleks and Cybermen and all the other things. And it's nice when he gets a chance to to play a character where there is no, you know, ring modulator involved and he just gets to do some, some you know, acting, if not himself, you know what I mean. He gets to play a human character and just their own emotions. So I thought, no, he was great in that. Um, and, yeah, and then the... Fatal Consequences, and that's the one with, it's the Marburg virus, I think, from memory. So I did a lot of research into um, viruses. <laughs> Never thought that would come in handy later in life. Um, and uh, and pandemics and the threats of pandemic and what would happen if you weaponized a virus. I was like, oh, 
I'm every sure time no, I wrote this every day, happen. I was always worried. I was always worried it was going to end up start coming true any moment now. So yeah, absolutely. Because um, they were all because all of them had some element of they were all based on actual things that had occurred. Um, so Snowblind, they had actually had somebody had gone a bit crazy and started killing people in the Antarctic, and they had to send the FBI down to sort it out. Even though I know they did that in an episode of the X Files, and it actually also happened in real life. So I'm sure there's no chance of there ever being a global pandemic. No, um, that'll that, never catch up. That could on. never happen. No, no, please, no. That that's pff, never. Um, and then and then Dreamland, of course, with that that enormous enormous cliffhanger. It was always the plan to end on the cliffhanger, um, to the frustration of quite a few people <laughs> who enjoyed the story and were really, you know, trying to figure out where it was going to go. But it was always planned to be a cliffhanger, and then. Uh, and then school reunion came along, and then that led to the Sarah Jane Smith, Sarah Jane Adventures, and of course there were no more um, audio dramas, which was a shame. But we always planned to end on the cliffhanger, and I know John had no plans to come back and do another series. So between the two of us, we we're just like, haha, we're just going to paint whoever gets takes the bat on next. We're going to paint them into an enormous corner, and then run away and leave them to try and sort it out. Um, so yeah evil laugh at that point. Um, in Australia, we had a um, TV series called Return to Eden, which was originally a miniseries and it was turned into a soap opera, like Dynasty, very glamorous, very rich, and 24 episodes, the most ridiculous plot lines, the most ridiculous cliffhangers every week. And it didn't really take off in Australia, and they axed it after the first season with this huge, huge season cliffhanger. But they started showing it in Indonesia and in around Asia and was getting 50, 60, 70 million people tuning in to this utterly ridiculous Australian soap opera. <laughs> and so when it came to the end of the season, because it had this huge cliffhanger, they went, well, what do we do? We have to wrap it up somehow. And they brought back three of the main cast for 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, they managed to wrap up every bit of the last <laughs> couple of episodes <laughs> through a conversation in jail, out of jail, someone being arrested and ended the whole show. And so it's it's still. I mean, can I say I adored this show? It was so over the top, camp, and ridiculous. And but yeah, so they actually yeah. I keep thinking you just need to do that somehow. Get a, a five minute cliff, five minute resolution, to finish it off. But that being said, this is not the only big finish series that ends on a cliffhanger and just ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, absolutely not. There are endings that we could have done and pulled it together, but I kind of like the the idea of just Sarah floating north and, you know, we're not quite sure what's going to happen. Also, in the full and frank knowledge that she was going to be on TV, so therefore the character does live on in School Reunion. We didn't know about the, the Sarah Jane adventures at that point, but, I mean, you know, we now get, because Sadie's playing playing um, Sarah now, isn't she, in the audience? Is that That's right? right? Am I just yeah, imagining that? Doing an amazing yeah. job, yeah, so. and she really sounds like a mother. She's really got the intonations right now, and and nearly that part. Yeah, I mean, I was I was lucky a couple of years ago. I got to write a uh, an audio original for the for the BBC audio range, uh, a second Doctor audio original with um, Fraser Hines. Uh, as as the reader, as the narrator playing Jamie. But, of course, he does the most incredible Patrick Troughton. I mean, it's like Patrick Troughton is right there. It's uncanny how close the voice is. Um, and that was just, that was wonderful. So, yeah. Um, no, I must I must search out some of the, 
the the new ones with with Sadie, and I'd like to hear what she's doing now. So, listen, David. Listen once again. Thank you so much for your recollections. You've had amazing depth and understanding to these these stories, and made made me enjoy them all the more. Oh, you're very welcome. A, a trip down memory lane is always 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 a pleasure. Courtesy of Big Finish Magazine. Stephen Greif. Uh, well, Sir Donald is a kind of a, a one of these very big self-made men like Robert Maxwell. He's a sort of Robert Maxwell type. Came from nothing, went into corporate business, into the city, and became a billionaire by the time he was 28 or something. It's his dream to be on this flight. He wants to be the first man to do it, and he's paid lots of money to do it, and nothing's going to get in his way. He's that kind of ruthless guy. He's got a like all of these guys, he's got soft spots, but not many people see it. Well, Johnny Ainsworth approached me because I've worked with him before. He interviewed me a couple of times uh, with Jackie Pierce for Blake Seven Conventions. Very good to work with. And um, I've worked with Big Finish on quite a number of occasions as well. Judge Dredd and other Doctor Who's. Tom Chadburn, who I worked with yesterday on an episode. Tommy and I were at RADA together, so uh, it was a thrill to see him an old dear friend, and um, we're going to meet up again soon, have some lunch, chew the fat. Got a few years to catch up on. So I know Tommy, and of course Jackie. I mean, Jackie Pierce. Now, the the, the ending of this series, uh, I still remember how I felt at the end, and it's one of those... Let me put it this way. Was there any consideration to a third season? We wanted to leave it in such a way that there could be a third season. But surely there had to be a third season. You can't, you can't have possibly meant to leave it the way you did. Well, I think I wanted to leave it. If it did end there, I wanted. I, I almost wanted there to be an end. I mean, we couldn't kill her off and didn't want to kill her off, but wanted to leave it slightly ambiguously. Uh, you said I'm not to give away spoilers. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, th- I, th- I think I think we can clearly say there's a huge cliffhanger at the end really? of the season, and it doesn't resolve. No. I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming there must have been plans for a third season. You must have known there must have been plans for how you're going to resolve it. Well, there was plans in the no. I mean, because if there had been a third season, I think I decided I wasn't going to do it. I don't know why I thought that it wasn't. I mean, I'd certainly enjoyed working with Liz. I think I just wanted to do something else different, and it had taken up a lot of sort of time and blah, blah, blah. So basically you're just an evil monster who wanted to leave an unbelievably difficult cliffhanger for someone else to <laughs> deal with. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sort of. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think I might have suspected that it was going to... There wouldn't be a third season. I think later on I did perhaps regret the way we'd done it because there'd been there were a few other Big Finish series around that time that also ended on cliffhangers. I can't think what they were, though. But I remember it being a criticism being levelled at us at the time. Gallifrey used to end with big cliffhangers. But there was, I think there was other ones, ones that weren't resolved or something. I can't remember what it was. Tomorrow People may have been one of them, actually. Possibly. And Jane Lightfoot ended up doing off as well for the same, for tragic reasons. Maybe. That would have been later. But anyway, anyway, I saw. I think I may have slightly thought mm, maybe we shouldn't have done that. You know, um, I think we just wanted to end it dramatically. I was going to say, you say that you shouldn't have done it, but it does make for extremely compelling listening. 
It's oh, really, good. really good stuff. Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of shouting, isn't there? At the end? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like how they finish Blake 7. When you finish a show in such a dramatic way, you won't forget it. You may not like it, but you won't forget it. No. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I, I still, I suppose now, I sort of think it's still... Uh, I do quite like it. I mean, yes, there's sort of questions about what what has happened. But in amongst it, there is still... Um, it's still sort of hopeful in a way. I mean, because I think Sarah says, oh, she's like, I didn't think I'd ever see that again or something like that. I think I wanted to, we wanted to suggest possibly that it was like she'd see the TARDIS had appeared or something like that, or I, I don't know. Um, something had happened that she knew about that we didn't, and it was possibly a good thing. Okay, so I was I was taking like some creatures that she'd met, in the, so some Doctor Who story that she'd had dealings with had arrived, Ice Warriors or something was like what I was taking. And, and, and also, because... Yeah, you know, they're heading into the comet and Mandragora and all those things were connected too. So, yeah, yeah, there's so many possibilities. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and I think that, I thought that was good. We need a short trip, don't we, to end? <laughs> Not everything has to be tied up. <laughs> you want a bridge between that and the Sarah Jane Adventures? We uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures is there, so we know something happened between that and that. So we have to be satisfied with that. We could say our audios happen after Sarah Jane Adventures, for we know. <laughs> it's not it's not conclusive, is it? That they don't. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure. I think it's a little bit of an awkward existence for them to exist side by side. But no, it's fine. So, what, what, what in terms of just the whole series? Then, what are you most happy with? What are you glad about? Uh, well, my, my personal memory is, is, is you know working with Liz, and that was just brilliant, and that was such a in such a fond memory and i think we made it you know it, it was a follow-on from the first series but it was its own thing as well it's quite different in many ways i loved getting sean lay in to do the news report stuff which and that's how it ends isn't it the last thing we hear is that is, the, is one of those news reports and because i don't even know sean lay is a a news reader on the bbc um uh, i i knew him from a long time ago when he'd done audiovisual stuff. So I said, would you mind playing a newsreader? And uh, he came in to do that. And he recorded all his stuff in one go. Met Liz very briefly. Um, and I just, I love that way it ends on that, on the news report. You know, you just have this quite sort of level, calm, matter of fact, we've lost contact sort of thing, isn't it? And, uh, but I mean, the whole, the whole radio broadcast was a bit Russell T. Davis. He often used... News, news to get a lot of exposition done quickly, and that was one of the yeah. really effective things that was used. It was it was one of those framing devices that you used, well, that that um the writer was using throughout, Dave was using throughout, as well as the yeah. I talked about the previous and, and next. He also used that, that as a framing device. Those radio broadcasts, which I think he'd also done, or at least it had been done previously in the first season as well, but worked really effective to give it a lot of exposition, but also set the framework. So in the first radio broadcast, I went back and listened to it again after I listened to the four of them. Of course, everything that's going to happen in the next four stories is mentioned in that news report. So there's clues right. being given away to the you know, missing scientists here and people going there and a protest happening here. And so all the four stories are all being self-referenced in those news yes. reports, even though we haven't got to that story yet. Yes, that's right. 
So yes. it's just a very clever way of preempting the action's yeah. going to come. Yeah, yeah, and it sort of helps bind them all together a bit, I think. So, yeah, no, I was very pleased with that. I don't know if David came up with that entirely on his own, or I suggested it. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I was quite I was pleased about that. Um, and it's the only series for Big Finish I've done where we actually had a separate photo shoot for the covers, which uh, seems like a luxury thing to do. I mean, because normally we're just using old photos of the characters from TV shows and everything. But for this, we had to, we I booked a photo studio. Lee Binding came along and saw, uh, who was doing the covers and he sort of um, directed it. He'd sort of decided what he wanted to do for each of the covers. Uh, and we just got Liz to stand in appropriate poses, holding holding a pencil, which became a torch and on the first cover and everything. Were they all her outfits? Yeah, it was all her own clothes. And uh, I think apart from the Parker, I think the Parker we got from, you know, that she wears on the front of um, uh, the snowbound one. And I remember, I remember getting slightly annoyed about that. I thought, oh, we should have made her wear a scarf because you can just see she's wearing a T-shirt underneath. And I think, I don't know, you'd, you'd wrap up a bit more warm in the Arctic if you would do. <laughs> um, and I think we made sure at least in one of them she has the little airplane badge because that's visible in most of the covers of the first series, I think. And that sort of became a thing, really. So she she made sure she had that. Uh, so that was good. It was nice to be able to have sort of proper especially shot covers and she just can I say she never aged did she like just looking no. stunning you, you look at those photos and think oh no they must have been yeah decades old but yeah she's just amazing how she always looks so good yeah no no she was amazing um now you also had especially created a theme song as well for yes it was different for the second series wasn't it it was because yes. you had, had a new um Steve Foxen did the music and sound design for yes. this series, so he did his own theme song. Was that something you'd requested? Yes, definitely. I think I wanted it to reflect that whole sort of prophecy mystery thing, um, to have a sort of sense of that. Yeah, and once, and once again, just excellent sound design by Steve Foxen. He did an amazing job. Yes, yeah, yeah, Steve was. Did he do all of them? Okay. Did he do sound design of all of them? I yeah, think I think he, he did. did. See, again, I'd worked with Steve a lot on Judge Dredd and um, had a high regard for his abilities to do sound design and music. I remember at the end of it all, I think after that photo shoot, which I think was the last thing we did, we recorded everything. And I, I remember Liz saying, right. And it, for some reason, everyone else just disappeared. And it was just Liz and me. And she said, she said let's go and have a drink she said i'll buy you a gin and tonic she said or something like that and, and we just sat down in this hotel barn near the where the photo sh studio was and just sort of chatted about it really and, and yeah that was like sort of almost like that was our little private rap party in a way because we and it had felt like a long journey because we had been talking about it all for so long and um and i, I think we were pleased with what we'd done really which was nice and we kept, you know, even though we didn't do a third season, I, I kept in touch with Liz. You know, I did I did a few interviews with her for Doctor Who magazine and stuff. And so we would we would talk on the phone or uh, I'd see her at a convention or something. And I think the last time I saw her was at the launch for the final season of the Sarah Jane Adventures. 
and that was that. I mean, that was only a few months before she passed away, unfortunately. But, yeah. Do you know she was sick? No, no. Um, I think she'd kept that very, very quiet. Yeah, so it came as a bit of a surprise, I think. A bit of a shock. By the time we recorded the second season, Liz had already filmed the TV episode she was going to be in, even though it wouldn't appear till much later. Um, were you aware that she... she? Yeah. No, I wasn't aware. Right. No. And I suspect she was under a strict NDA as well. Um, Probably. So was there, yeah, any, yeah. was there ever any talk of the third season? Uh, very briefly, um, I had a conversation with Liz and I had a conversation with John and the both conversations were the same, which was, did you notice that it was left slightly open? And I said, well... I mean, it would be a bit of a stretch, but yeah, I can, I can see. Okay, I mean, maybe, but um, so I think that there, there was, there was the, I think the desire was to 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 make sure there was a possibility for a third, um, but I but I suspect now, um, and particularly now that um, she'd filmed the the uh, school reunion stuff. Uh, was it the school reunion stuff or the Sarah Jane Adventures? It was the school oh, reunion. Because yeah. everyone loved her, obviously, and they went, well, give her her own series because she's great. Um, I suspect that became much more of a preoccupation and much more interesting for her uh, in terms of uh, in terms of a project. And I think probably the third. I think there might have been a long way down the line, you know, kind of now-ish, maybe they could have thought about um, bringing it back. But... Uh, from from what the decisions were in terms of the the end, I'm, I'm not going to do spoilers um, unless you do spoilers. Depends. But you proved. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I won't, I won't do it as a matter of course. I, it it was it looked to me reading it for the first time and kind of then going back over the ending, going what's happened? Just what has happened here? Is there longevity in this? And I thought, no, not really, not really. I, I think they it looked as though they pretty much closed closed it off. Yeah. You didn't feel they needed to um, contact you when with, you didn't contact Russell T Davis and say, you know, where's my part in the Sarah Jane Adventures? You know, I'm 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 Sarah Jane's companion. I need to be here. Do you know what? You know, but if these things do actually occur, um, you, I would be lying if I if I said that I I looked at this Sarah Jane Adventures and went. Well, that's a bit mean, isn't it? I mean, all this, all this work. I don't, I don't, I can't understand why they don't want a um, sort of slightly craggy, long-haired bloke in this series with a load of teenagers. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I'm probably not right for it. Yeah, I mean, you always think, oh my God, Sarah, um, they're interchangeable. Liz is doing that. She'll, she'll probably, she'll probably get me and Sadie, and that's she'll probably do that. And you think. Well, you never know. I might, you know, get get cast as something. No, it's never. It's just totally unrealistic. It's a t- it's a completely different product, completely separate. And I, I, mean, I no, I, I. It wasn't like I was fuming for days. I just was like, well, that would have been nice. But then you watch it and you think, there's no, there's no place for me here. <laughs> How did you hear when Liz Liz passed? Did did you know she was sick? No, I didn't know she was sick. No, it was a bit. It was um. Who did I? Who is it that I spoke to? I think it was Nick and Gary, but I spit. But you know what? I found it on Twitter. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter gave me the the heads up as 
well, no, this isn't going to age well, is it? But um, yeah, no, Twitter was the was the thing, and then I called. I probably I probably called Nick. Me and Nick are really good mates, and then he was like, "Oh yeah, no, we didn't. I'm so sorry. We should have said something." Um, and yeah, I no, I had absolutely no idea about it at all. I was just really, and it was really really sad because suddenly what happens is you you go back to you immediately all your images are flooded with all the fun that you had and this sort of vibrant woman um this sort of beautiful vibrant you know it's very good sport um and but also serious lady who you spent quite a lot of time with and you sort of became incredibly familiar with and very friendly with you know um you know i'm not it's not like oh me and liz became we used to go out the pub all the time and she would always you know she'd buy me a man united top for christmas and you know we'd we'd kind of bump into each other at things and then when, but then when we got into the studio it was like oh here we go this is great we know where we are with each other this is going to be a piece of cake and we we bounced off each other like honestly we you know it was a it was a good it was an unexpected but really good partnership i think they i think that the guys at big finish did they did a good job um i think i think it was a a dynamic that they thought was worth the risk and um and i think it turned out to be to be pretty pretty good um but yeah i when i found out about that i just was just so sad and then i think i posted a picture of me and liz on on facebook and just said i've just found out you know this is terribly sad and lots of people came oh no this is you know this kind of outpouring of of sadness and it was um yeah it was it affected me it did um I just when things happen like that, when they're when they're a, such a sort of horrible surprise, and you just think, "Where did you come from?" But I but you know that it it makes sense that from what I know of Liz, that she would have not said anything. She'd have just um, tried to make the best of it, and yeah, it's a real show. It's a, it's, a, it's horrible, but it's really but it's really nice that that Sadie's reprising Sarah um, for Big Finish now. I think that's a that's. Um, that's a beautiful tribute, and um, and uh, she's she's the it's only person that can do it. Sounding more and more like her too. It's just extraordinary how how well they sound. They do they 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 do sound, but they sounded similar on the um, on the Sarah Jane's. I mean, now now that Sadie's, <laughs> I'm not saying Sadie's voice has dropped, but you know what I mean. She's it has. Sounds, it has. <laughs> she's older. She's a bit older now. Um, and there is the same. There's a similarity of cadence, actually, and there's a similar and, and the accents. It's a very nicely spoken English accent, and um, that that's that's the same. It's like they got you know, phonetically. You'd look at an analysis of it, and you'd be like, "This is this is the same person." So yeah, I think it's a I think it's a, a brilliant tribute and a, and um, incredibly well executed as well. Yeah, yes. Uh, when I heard that, I was I was I was delighted. Well, Philip, it's been a pleasure. Uh, revisiting these stories again, and it's been been lovely to chat with with uh, some of the people involved uh, behind the scenes and in front of the mic, um, as always. And uh, Jess Fielder, lovely guy, and uh, thanks to John Ainsworth and David Bishop for all the time that they gave us to uh, to really give this a good thorough revisit. Yeah, it's interesting. Our first retrospective of the first season of Sarah Jane has become one of our most popularly downloaded episodes, which means there must be an awful love out there, uh, both for Sarah Jane and that. Um, and hopefully, as many people, if not more, uh, listen to this and go back and find the first one. Because, yeah, just understanding what, what Elizabeth Slayton did, recognizing these two amazing series, it'd be lovely to have had more. 
but they, they, they're a very special place and they do a lot of special things. And yeah, very, very excited to revisit them. And I've so thoroughly enjoyed listening to these nine stories again. Just on a related note, Big Finish have recently released something related to Sarah Jane Smith, or at least the Sarah Jane Smith Adventures. So Rani takes on the world. And it's interesting, I was looking at some of your tweets saying how good they were. So I thought, I'll, I'll have, a, have a listen to it. And uh, yeah, it's been nice to revisit. Like, it's, it's not the same world that was portrayed in the Sarah Jane Smith audio series, but it's nice to be able to go back and get sort of that attachment to to Sarah Jane Smith, the character, who is still decades and decades later still adored by fans old and new. Yeah, well, it's interesting how the Doctor looms over all these stories. You know, Sarah occasionally refers to him going back to space. So he, he, the Doctor's not in any of these stories, but he, his presence looms over Sarah Jane Smith's life. And so it's interesting with that new Rani box set where Sarah Jane looms over Rani and Clyde. And yes. so it's, it's, yes. it's no longer the Doctor, it's now Sarah Jane. And so she has that... Um, yeah, that air over what's going on, which is which is really nice. And yeah, it's a said, it's a constant presence. It is. So yeah, really enjoyed yeah. that first three box set. Really looking forward to the next three in December. I think the, the second box set of Rani gets released, and yeah, the, the the legacy goes on. Absolutely. All right, it's been a pleasure to be able to do this with you, Philip. So thank you once again for doing this with me. My pleasure, and thank you for letting me um, cause so much hassle for your editing skills. <laughs> Uh, It's what you do best, Philip. Oh, I know. We'll catch you all next time. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio, episode 158, Sarah Jane Smith, series two, a retrospective, with your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny, with thanks to our guests, John Ainsworth, David Bishop, Jez Fielder, and Gary Russell. Music by Steve Foxen. Sarah Jane Smith is available to purchase from bigfinish.com. Our website is sirensofaudio.com. Comment below to let us know what you thought of the episode or contact us via email at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or via any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time.